0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Anaheim, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Anaheim, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Anaheim. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. All right, good evening and welcome everyone. I'm James Orr. So we're doing an intro to buy and hold real estate deal analysis. That's what the classes we're doing here. So this is based on a class we taught about a year ago. And actually, I think Steve was the basis for a lot of the content in this particular class. It's the same structure that we had when we did that one for how deals differ, except I updated it with the new spreadsheet and did some new things for it. So it's been about a year or so since we did that. I think it was back in like June almost, right? I think that we did it. So uh, that's what you're going to get tonight. Last time we did this, it went over two hours. So I'm going to try to go really fast, but if you have questions, do let me know. And uh, I do move pretty quickly. So there you go. You can download a copy of the spreadsheet at realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. This is the brand new version that you guys all have a handout on. I will get the new version up tomorrow. I didn't want to post it until the class. So you'll have a copy right here to be able to see it. And then tomorrow, when you go to that website, it should download the new link probably later in the day in case I sleep in. All right. All right. So the uh, color coded, yours is not in color, but if you could see up here, anything that's in a manila cell, like this little light yellow, those are fields that you can fill in. Okay. Anything else you should not be able to edit at all. The blue ones are calculations. They're like gray background with the blue text. So those are things that you are calculating. You should not try to edit those at all. So that's what we're going to be covering. All right, so what's different? What's the same when we're analyzing deals? That's primarily what we're going to be going through. How does deal analysis differ for single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, commercial properties? Those are all going to be kind of questions we got tonight. So who is like the least afraid of me and is willing to call me out on my stuff? I think Kevin probably. Oh, yeah, you might be too. <laughs> So I think Kevin's going to be the guy, though. So if I don't tell you, like, what's different analyzing a deal, please call me out on it. And if I don't tell you, like, where to get the number from when you're doing deal analysis, please call me out on that. And you're welcome to back up, Kevin, if you want to. But I think Kevin's going to be the enforcer tonight, so. All right, so uh, you can use the spreadsheet that you have in your hand to analyze any type of buy-and-hold deal plus nomading. Are we have any nomads in here? Quite a few. Okay, good. So you guys can use this as your deal analysis for doing that. House hacking, any house hackers? Renting out rooms and stuff. Yep. So you can use the same deal for that. Partnerships, lease options, lease purchases. You technically can use it for this. Although there's going to be improvements made that allow you to do even more advanced partnership type analysis. You can do it for the rent part of BRRRR, but it is not designed for you to go figure out buying a property, doing the rehab and getting your money out. That's not what this spreadsheet was designed for. So it's probably not great for that. You could probably make it work. And it's not designed for fix and flip. That's a totally different spreadsheet. Any questions on that? Back to my old habit of asking if there's questions, just turning around keeping on going. So call out if you've got questions and we'll get you the microphone. But so we're gonna cover tonight what deal analysis and how does that change based on the type of property you're analyzing and then where do you get the values from? That's what Kevin's gonna be enforcing. And so I'm gonna walk you through each input and do that. So tonight, one of the things I struggle with is, you know, how do you teach an eight hour class in two hours? How do you teach someone how to do everything you need to know for deal analysis in a single two hour session? It's really, really hard to do. So what I decided to do is help you with just straight up how the spreadsheet works, what you're gonna enter, where you get the numbers from. But what I didn't decide to go into, which we have a two hour class on by itself is, what makes a deal a deal for you? So that's more like establishing your buying criteria. Like how do you determine what, when you put the numbers in there, should I buy this or not? So there's a two hour class on that already. I'll probably reteach it at some point in the future. And then there's like two hour classes on like individual fields in the spreadsheet. There's a two-hour class on how to get rent comps. There's a two-hour class on insurance. There's a you know, two-hour class on PMI. So there's no way I can teach you two hours of PMI, two hours of insurance, two hours of rent comps, two hours of you know, all these different things in one night. So tonight's going to be sort of like how to use a spreadsheet, how to do deal analysis. And then I'm going to ask you at the end to go do deal analysis for yourself. You know, go do 100 deal analysis examples so that you get good. And then you'll determine, hey, what is a deal in my marketplace for me? Like if I'm looking at hundred properties, you know, what is it gonna be that's gonna be a good deal? What's not gonna be a good deal, okay? Okay, so that's what's going on there. All right, so follow along on your spreadsheet. And my intention of giving you the big version of the spreadsheet, not just giving you a small one, is for you to take notes right on this. So go ahead and write notes, anything that you think is important for you, go ahead and do that. The second handout you have is all of the overrides you're not really gonna do anything with this tonight. And you might make a one note or two, but it's really just for you to know that there's a reference for it. There's a whole separate tab, which I'll show you where it is, okay? The primary thing you're gonna take notes on is that big one. And if you need to turn the other sheet over on the back or make some notes, you can do that too. Okay, so let's go over like what you're looking at so you know what's happening with the spreadsheet. So section one, everyone see it on theirs? So everyone know we're looking at that big sheet? Section one's all your inputs. And my intention of making this spreadsheet the way it is is, simplify the number of inputs you need and don't clutter the spreadsheet with a whole bunch of extraneous data that you don't need. Right? But you guys may have seen other spreadsheets, used other spreadsheets, and you may have been like, what number do I look at to determine if this is a deal? Or like, why are all these extra numbers here? Do I ever use those? And until you've used it a hundred times and realize, hey, look, I'm only looking at a few numbers on here, it's all extraneous. So what I did is I said, if they're all extraneous, why do we even put them on there? Why don't we just hide them onto like another page of the spreadsheet? And so that's what the intention was. So all of the stuff that's going to be on here tonight is going to be really simplified right here. And then all the stuff you need to make decisions is over here on the right. And if you need to drill down, you have the ability to do that in the other tab, but you don't have to. Does that make sense? Does anyone use the new spreadsheet a bit? Yeah. Is it, is it better for that? Is it like easier to use kind of like once you get used to it? Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew says, yep. Yeah. Okay. So inputs number one, that whole section is going to be your inputs. Number two, that big green button on there, it's not green on your sheets, black and white, but the big green button, that's if you take your deal, once you've got to analyze, if you want to export it right to Real Estate Financial Planner in order to do additional portfolio analysis type type stuff on there, it's a one-click export. I got tired of copying stuff from my spreadsheet to to the Real Estate Financial Planner software, so I fixed it. I wrote the spreadsheet so that all of the fields line up with Real Estate Financial Planner. And you can just do one button, it clicks over and copies it to your own account the number three part is there is like the professional information of whoever gave you the spreadsheet. I'm going to be licensing out the spreadsheet to other real estate agents and lenders and people in other markets, and they'll be able to put their own information in there for a fee. So right now it's got my contact information on there. And then number four, it doesn't show up in your sheet, but it's the different tabs on Excel. So if you're in Excel, there's an inputs and dashboard tab. That's this page. And if you click on the overrides, that's going to be that second handout I gave you with three pages. That's where all the extra stuff is in case you didn't know. All right. And by the way, it's been a long time since I've done live classes and I've not said this a lot. If you have questions, interrupt me. Because I'm just gonna keep going. Yeah, Rob. On the previous spreadsheet, correct me if I'm wrong, there were there were sort of two different slots for yep. mortgages if you took out a second mortgage, which I always used to treat as like a HELOC, almost like a slot for HELOCs. Yep. Is that was that go under other expenses these days? Because I see that the mortgage section has, like you say, been simplified. Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I always felt on the spreadsheet you're referring to that that was kind of janky because most people didn't do it right. They didn't actually do their HELOC loan kind of configuration correctly. So I need to do a separate class on how to do it correctly in this. But yes, the really short answer is you can put the payment you have on that second loan as an additional expense, and it will do the majority of the calculations correct, except... It's not going to really do any of your return on equity numbers or like return on investment numbers. Because if you have no money in the deal because you use the HELOC to do it, it's largely going to be infinite except for whatever you have left in there, right? So there's going to be some weird things about that. You probably could force it to work, but, and you're a smart guy, I bet you could figure it out, but I do need to teach a class on it. Yeah, and they have like 10-year limit, 10-year terms, all these types of things. Yeah, there's like limitations on how long it stays out there, and a lot of them are interest only. So there's some weird stuff. I probably do need to teach a whole class. If someone wants to drop me an email, I'll make a note to do that class. I can email you. Okay, awesome. Thank you. All right. Whoever has the mic is now the person in charge of running the mic. Okay, so that was section four for the overrides, which I covered there. And then five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. We're going to cover those on separate slides, but those are all the fields for making decisions. That's all like the output. Once you enter your numbers in section one, it does all the calculation. It updates all these charts for you. So all you need to do is look at these charts and decide, is this a deal for me or is it not a deal for me? Should I pass on it? Okay, so I'll go into these in detail, but they're all listed here if you wanna see it. But basically I'm gonna do a separate slide for each of them and I'll go into detail about it. Any questions? Am I going too fast? So I know I have a lot of ground to make up. Nope, good. You can, i, I, I just leave it out if I were you. Just don't be whispering crazy things on there. <laughs> lest you hear it forever on the mixer. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, the question we get a lot is, hey, the spreadsheet is locked. Can you unlock it for me? The answer is no. Okay. Everything that you need to do is unlocked. All of the fields you need to edit are manila. If it's not manila, you don't need to edit it. It's, a, it's like a calculation. So you do not need to do anything. All the functionality you need is already there. Okay. Anything you should be able to write for is manila background. I said that. Anything else locked down so you don't edit something accidentally. You cannot sell this spreadsheet to other people. I need to say that because someone tried to. You can't brand the spreadsheet to your business. You can't just stick your logo on there and use it. I may offer that in the future. If you want to share it, go ahead and send someone a link. Send them to the link to estatefinanceplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. It's free. Okay. And if you are an Excel expert, if you're like, look, James, I really need to make an advanced modification to this. I'm an expert in Excel. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to screw it up. If that's the case, then the protection that Excel puts on there is like a childproof lock. If you're an expert, you should know how to overcome it. And if you don't know how to overcome it, then you shouldn't be messing with the spreadsheet. (laughs) right? Andrew's Andrew's laughing because he knows. Yes. So the question was, I'll repeat it for the microphone. So the question is, this is really for buy and hold. Is there a separate spreadsheet for fix and flips and for Burr? I don't think I've released one in a very long time because I have not been focused on fix and flip for a very long time, but I'm probably due to make one. And so I'll go ahead and if you want to send me an email, I'll go ahead and put it on my list to make a fix and flip spreadsheet. The challenge with fix and flip spreadsheets for a lot of folks is There's really like three major ways that people analyze fix and flips and they're all slightly different. And so I need to be able to make this spreadsheet in a way that you can do all three. So I'll have to think about exactly how I would structure that. Because I I used to, a very long period of time ago, I used to cater to fix and flip people. That was like my niche. And my clients, like I'd I'd like really high-end clients that were buying a whole bunch of fix and flip stuff. And they would all analyze deals slightly differently. And there were like three major schools of thought on how they do that. So I'll have to think about how I do it. If anyone has my old client book, I talk about the three different ways in the back of that book, if you've ever read that section. Okay, uh, does that answer your question? Awesome, thanks. Okay, cool. So if you if you wanna edit it, you sh- need to know how to like do the childproof doorknob. If you don't know, don't be messing around with it. Uh, don't ask me for the password, I'm not gonna give it to you. Okay, optional overrides. So this whole handout you have here, this is an example of all the overrides. This is the section I'm talking about. And really what it is, you click on that overrides tab and you can override anything. So if you've used previous spreadsheets before that had overrides for rent or overrides for sale price or overrides for maintenance or something like that, a lot of the people have been here have used the spreadsheet before that had some overrides for that. Long long gone are the days where you could only override three things. You should be able to override everything. And so, That is now the case. All these manila fields are able to edit anything you want for any calculation, and some of the calculations in two ways, like before the calculation gets made, or you wanna override the results after the calculation is made, you could override that too. The thinking behind this is, and it probably works right now, I just haven't taught the class and haven't made sure, but the thinking eventually will be, this is not only the spreadsheet you will use to analyze deals, it is the spreadsheet you can then use to calculate and keep track of your deal over time. So instead of being able to say, hey, appreciation is gonna be 3% a year, or whatever the number is, you'll be able to go back and say, appreciation year one was this actual number, appreciation year two was this actual number, my cash flow in this year was this actual number, and then it will update all of the return on investments, return on equity calculations, using your real numbers uh, in the spreadsheet. So that was the thinking behind building it this way. So that's what's coming. It probably works right now as it is, but I will be creating additional tools to make it easier to do that and some, and some kind of like additional reporting. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, so you can override a large number of inputs. You could see intermediate calculations and you can see advanced calculations all on that thing. If you, you wanna look at what is available, go through and look at those if you want to. Okay, that's what the overrides is. All right, mess it up. Inevitably, you're gonna do some type of calculation. You're gonna mess something up. You're gonna have a number in there. you gonna be like, why are my numbers so weird? Something is off. Download a copy of the spreadsheet and never use the one you download. Make a copy of that every single time so that if you ever need to go back to the original somehow, you can go back to the original. You can also use Control-Z in order to undo what you just did in Excel, or you can do the undo feature in Excel itself. So if you mess up something, go restart and enter your numbers again from the beginning. If you're gonna do another deal analysis, don't always use the one you did in case you made modifications on the overrides tab and you forgot you did that. Start fresh, okay? Uh, and then save your spreadsheet often. All right, good. All right, so now I'm going to walk through all the inputs for you. So there's like categories. There's the there's the purchase inputs. That's that little heading right there. There's the mortgage inputs. There's the income inputs. The annual expenses and depreciation. I'm starting with purchase inputs. I'm going to go through them one by one. And Kevin's going to call me out if I don't talk about what's different when you're analyzing different types of deals or where to get the number from if you don't know when you're doing deal analysis. Okay, we're in agreement, Kevin. All right, awesome. Give him the mic. he just say, hey, you missed something. I'll, I'll do it. it. doesn't really, he's not going to tell me what it is. Well, maybe he is. All right. So at the very top, if you guys downloaded a previous version, this wasn't in here. It's an oversight because I don't usually use this field, but I now added the ability for you to put the property address in the new spreadsheet. So that's one of the changes that was made in version four instead of version three. Okay. So you put your property address in there at the very top above purchase inputs. It doesn't matter what property type you're doing. You just name it whatever you want to name it. So here are some examples. You can do the address and MLS number if you want to. You can do the address, MLS number, and the type of deal you're analyzing. If I do a buy and hold with it this way, this is what the deal is. If I'm doing a lease option, if I'm doing a Nomad with 5% down, if I'm doing Nomad 5% down, but I'm going to prepay my PMI as an example, or if I'm going to do the lender paid PMI option as another example, or if I'm going to put 20% down, or if I'm going to put 20% and I'm going to owner occupy, or maybe you just want to call it something generic like, the project you're working on instead of an address and the MLS number. So whatever you wanna do to name it, it's really up to you. It's not used anywhere. It's for your own personal identification, but it is helpful sometimes to have the MLS number. That's one piece of advice I'll give you, okay? Any questions? Awesome. I'm having like a weird deja vu moment now. So if I start saying some odd stuff, that's what's going on. All right, so after repaired value. So I'm just starting at the top, working my way down. ARV stands for after repaired value. That's the value of the property. Once you've done all the fix up, if you're buying a property at a discount because it needs work, this is the value after you've done all your fix up on it. It's so what you think it'll be worth then, okay? So that's ARV. In some cases, it doesn't matter what type of property, it's always gonna be that type of number. When buying a property below fair market value, buying at a discount, this will be usually higher than the purchase price. How many people have bought a property in the last year did you have to pay above asking price in order to get the property? Okay, so in those cases, your ARV may be lower than your purchase price, okay? And then you'll probably have negative returns for appreciation that year while you're waiting for it to catch up. Okay. So buy it below there. I talked about that. Some hot markets, you'll be buying it for above ARV. I talked about that. Sometimes in this field, instead of just entering a number, especially with like new construction, I will sometimes use it as a formula. So in Excel, I'll say equals 450,000 plus 10,000 for the backyard, plus $12,000 for a fence, plus $3,000 for the appliance package. And so I'll just add up what all the values are instead of just putting in the total of being, whatever it is, 500,000 after everything. Does that make sense? Is then I can go look back and say, why is it so much more than what I thought it was? What did I add in there? And I can look at them all individually. Cool? All right. So purchase price, this is the same regardless of whatever type of property you're doing. When buying in the MLS, it's very common to have the purchase price equal the ARV. That is probably the most common situation. However, in our market right now, it's crazy, but you know, markets go in cycles and, you know, next year, five years from now, we may be able to buy properties at a discount. We may be, you know, a little bit overpriced and then people are doing stuff and you come in under asking price in order to get your offer accepted. Who knows, right? Everything changes. So right now though, it's pretty common to be above, but it's pretty typical over a very long period of time for them to be equal. Sometimes I'll even put in as a default that these fields equal each other. So I only have to edit one and it will just automatically update it for me. And that saves me a little bit of time, very little time, but it does save a little bit of time. If you're a real estate broker, any real estate agents in the room besides Steve? So if you're, oh, you are too, okay, great. So if you're doing real estate and you're buying it and you your real estate license, you can actually put in your purchase price, you can do if you're taking your commission as a discount, you can do 0.97 times whatever the price was in order to do that calculation. So you can actually do the calculation in there in order to Figure it out for yourself instead of having to do that. But all real estate agents can multiply by 3%. It's like a God given gift for a real estate agent to know how to do that. All right. Any questions on that? Sweet. Seller concessions. So a seller concession is when a seller gives you money to help cover some of your closing costs to buy the house. To be 100 percent clear, you cannot have a seller give you any of your down payment. You always need your down payment, but seller concessions can cover closing costs. They can cover things like buying down uh, the interest rate on your loan. They can cover some prepaids, but they can't actually give you part of your down payment. So if you need 5% down or you need 10% down, you always need that amount. You can't use seller concessions to overcome that. All right, so seller concessions, that's that field right there. You enter in the dollar amount, you've negotiated with the seller. You do this at the time of contract. So when you're negotiating the deal, you do it then. You don't usually do it afterward because you don't usually negotiate afterward with the exception of if you're negotiating as part of an inspection or a appraisal, Sometimes you can negotiate um, and get the seller to give you seller concessions instead of adjusting the price. You put in the dollar amounts that you negotiated and then we put in the percent. Why do we put in the percent? Why do we calculate the percent? You'll notice some of these, I do a calculation for percent. A lot of them, I don't care. Why is percent important here? Because loans limit how much you can get in seller concessions. They may say you can only have a maximum of 2% in seller concessions on a certain loan type. And so I want to show you what that value is so that you can see if you're over it. You talk to your lender to find out where you get that information from. Uh, often you'd raise your offer price to include seller concessions to rules and some closing costs for the loan. And the reason you might do this is because it can improve your cash on cash return on investment. But the idea is let's say you're trying to buy a $400,000 property. You could go to the seller and say, look, Mr. Seller, I know you've got this property listed for $400,000. I will offer you $405, but I need $5,000 back to cover some of my closing costs. So you're voluntarily paying them $405, $5,000 above. Um, they asking price, but you're asking for that back. So they're netting 400, the same amount they originally had on there. Does that make sense? Okay. So you would do that to improve your cash on cash return investment. When you do your deal analysis, do it both ways and see what I mean. Go ahead and do it where you pay 400 and that you've got to come out of pocket for $5,000 for your own closing costs, or do it where you offer them 405 and you, got to, you actually have $5,000 in seller concessions and see how that imp- impacts your returns. See for yourself the property must still appraise. You can't say, hey, listen, I'll give you 405 and the property's only going to appraise for 400 because it doesn't matter. The seller's going to come back to you and say, look, didn't appraise. We were going to try to get you $5,000 in seller concessions. It's not going to go through. We're going to take some of those back. And maybe all of it, maybe more than all of it, if it doesn't appraise for 400, or it may be partial amount. They may only say, look, it only appraised for 402. So I'll give you $2,000 in seller concessions. We'll adjust the price down to 402. Okay. This is all part of your negotiation. If you're buying all cash, seller concessions don't matter. Don't bother putting them in there. Don't bother negotiating if you're going to pay cash for a property. It doesn't make any sense. And at least in Colorado, and this may vary in other markets, but at least in Colorado, if you don't use your seller concessions, if you ask for $5,000 and between all of your prepaids and you're buying down your interest rate and everything else, if you don't use the full $5,000, the seller gets the difference. So if you don't use it all, you lose it. Not the whole thing. You lose the difference. Whatever, you are not, whatever you're short. So make sure that you're using that whole amount. Okay? Any questions on that? So, down payment percentage. If you ever wondered, hey, why, James, why do you sometimes have us put in a percentage? Why do you have us sometimes put in a dollar amount? Part of it is what you're likely to get as a number. And part of it is what we need for the real estate financial planner when you export it. Okay. So for example, down payment, you're going to get a loan based on down payment amount. So I said, look, you know, you really should have a percentage here. You shouldn't have a dollar amount. Although you could argue, look, I got 100K. I'm putting 100K down. So it's really a dollar amount. Well, then you got to adjust this percentage until it calculates whatever 100K is for you or whatever your total investment is for 100K. Okay. But in most cases, you're saying, look, I'm doing a 5% down loan. I'm going to put in 5%. And it's going to calculate it for me and tell me how much I need. That's the majority of the way the majority of the times, the way it works out for people. Okay, so you enter in this, the percent, the spreadsheet tells you the dollar amount, does that calculation for you. The down payment percentage will vary depending on the property type. If you go do certain types of properties, it's gonna be a different down payment amount. And the loan. So call your lender to discuss the specific property and the specific loan programs you're doing if you're not already familiar. And then before you make an offer on a property, that's a really good time to double check. Cause it sucks for you to go ahead and say, I think I know the loan I'm getting. You make an offer and you find out you can no longer get that loan or loan programs have changed. You don't qualify for that loan or something else weird has happened. So you wanna double check as close to when you're making an offer as possible. See the financing classes. I mean, I can't teach two hours worth of financing in the middle of a deal analysis class, but there's like lots of financing stuff. Here's the really short version. Detached single family homes, like regular houses, owner occupant, if you're living in the property, there's a zero, but there's a couple 0% down loan programs. Uh, USDA is one of them. It's for rural properties. VA is another one it's for veterans. And then I, I heard a couple of banks had some 0% down owner-occupant programs. 3% down is a uh, conventional loan program. You can do, you can buy a house with 3% down conventional. 3.5% down is the FHA. 5% down is conventional and you can do more than that. You can do 6%, you can do 7%, you can do 10%, you can do 15, you can do 20. Once you get above 20, you no longer have private mortgage insurance. So that's kind of a key thing although I wouldn't be afraid of PMI in most cases. So typically 20% or more to avoid private mortgage insurance. If you're doing non-owner occupant, if you're buying this property as an investment, typically the lowest you can do for a down payment where you're not gonna be living in the property is 15% down and that will have PMI. Then usually you do 20% down to have no PMI as a non-owner occupant as an investor. And 25% is another common one where you get a, a, usually a pretty significant benefit in interest rate. Okay. Condos and townhomes, it's similar to detached single-family homes. If it's non-warrantable, it may be more. Duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. you could do owner occupant with those. You have to move into one of the units, and you could do either the zero percent down VA loan for that. So you can move into a duplex triplex or a fourplex if you will live in one of the units and you can do nothing down. that's the VA loan, the only one you can do for that, or three and a half percent down FHA. Okay? So that's the two most common ones for doing owner-occupant in the multifamilies. So if you're doing house hacking and you wanna move into a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, if you could find one where the numbers make sense, then uh, that's typically. And then for non-owner-occupant, it's typically 25% down for this, okay? Five units, these are usually considered commercial properties. Owner-occupant loans are usually not available. You can move into one of the units and get some type of owner-occupant financing with there. So once you get the five units and above, that VA or FHA loan is usually not an option for you non-owner occupant, typically commercial financing with at least 20% down. It's often variable interest rates, so you're 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 risking the interest rate market as it moves. Sometimes it'll be, you know, fixed for 5 years and adjust and fixed for another 5 years and adjust and fixed for another 5 years and adjust, but it's variable in some form. It's not fixed for 30 years. And a lot of times they will have balloon payments, meaning that you may be making payments as if it's a you know, a a 30 year amortizing loan, but you get a balloon at 15 years or 20 years where you have to pay the whole thing, the whole balance that remains at the 15 year point. And uh, a lot of times the amortization periods are less than 30 years. The amortization period means what, over what period of time does a loan get paid off? So a lot of times when you do traditional financing, VA, FHA, conventional, it's usually a 30 year payoff period. These tend to be less than that, which means your payment's going to be significantly higher which means the deal needs to be much better or you need to put a lot more down in order to have a cash flow, okay? Any questions on down payment? All right, there's a couple more slides on down payment. So down payment for nomads and house hackers. So for nomads and house hackers, we typically suggest you analyze the deal as if you were buying it with 20% down. Why? Why would would I tell you, hey, look, I know you're doing 5% down or 3.5% down. Why would I tell you you should analyze this as as though you're putting 20% down? Anyone know? Yeah. So Steve just hit it on the head. So basically you want to look at it. If I were buying this property as an investment, because it's, it's going to be a property that you're probably are converting to investment after some period of time. So we want to look at it and say, would I buy this as an investment property? And we do that by looking at 20% down. You know, If I were going to do this with 20% down, does it make sense as an investment? But we're choosing not to invest 20% down when we're doing these house hacking nomads. A lot of times we're putting 5% down or 3.5% down. So what you do is you analyze it as if you put 20% down, Then you go back in the spreadsheet and you look at that and you say, okay, 20%, yep, okay, it looks looks like I might consider this an investment. Then you go back and you say, okay, now I'm putting 5% down. And sometimes you get a better interest rate by doing owner-occupant most of the time. So you're going to change the interest rate too. And you're going to reanalyze the deal with the 5% down. And you're going to look at it. In a lot of cases, you're going to have negative cash flow. So if you bought it with 20% down, maybe you have slightly positive cash flow. With the way prices have been going up very recently, because we've been seeing this massive increase in prices and interest rates have gone like crazy the last three months. A lot of these properties are 20% down are not going to have positive cash flow. So if you look at it though, and now you do it with a 5% down, you're probably going to have even more negative cash flow or negative cash flow if you didn't before. Now you got to say to yourself, okay, and if I don't have to put up an extra 15% down, if you're buying a $400,000 property, put 5% down, that's 20K if my math is correct, instead of having to put up $80,000. So instead of having to put it up $60,000 more, am I okay with $200 a month negative cash flow? And you need to make that decision for yourself. That's why we do the 20% down first. You analyze it to see if it makes sense as a regular investment. Then you go and you switch it over to 3.5% or 5%. And you say, can I stomach and can I afford the negative cash flow on this property? I'm basically financing, I'm using that in quotes, the rest of my down payment over time. Instead of having to come up with that extra $60,000, I'm saying, can I afford two hundred dollars a month for the next few years until rents increase and I no longer have negative cash flow? Does that make sense, to everybody? It's kind of an important point. Okay. So once you're done analyzing it with twenty percent, reduce the down payment to your owner occupant down payment, whatever that's zero or three, three and a half, five percent, and change the interest rate if you're doing that, if you're getting an owner occupant rate. And often this will result in negative cash flow. You're financing the rest of your down payment. Do you have positive cash flow if you put twenty percent down? That's usually what you'd use to make your decision to buy it as an investment. And then how long will it take for the negative cash flow to equal your missing down payment? So if you're doing, I don't have to put up $60,000, but it's going to be negative $200 a month. How long, how many months could you go before you got to that $60,000 that you had to put down that you didn't? I like to look at that number and say a long time. Okay. Um, And then are you okay with this negative cash flow? And then I usually throw in the curveball because you get tax benefits of owning rental properties. Are you okay with the negative cash flow plus the tax benefits you get by owning the rental property, which is called cash flow from depreciation? That's calculating the tax benefits you get times whatever your tax rate is and how much cash you'll get back on your tax return or less you can pay in on your taxes if you're taking your normal exemptions from your paycheck. And if those two combined, you're okay with that, then you can make your decision whether you want to move forward or not. So when we add regular cash flow, Plus cash flow from depreciation, the regular cash flow you have, plus the tax benefits of owning the rental property. When we combine those together, we call that true cash flow. So, whenever you see a reference to true cash flow on this spreadsheet, that's what we're talking about. And I'll jump ahead here because you guys have the handouts in front of you. But this first box where it has like these three things, this first box here, if you ever see it, that shows you your cash flow. It shows you your cash flow from depreciation. And then it adds them together for you in that third bar and shows you what your true cash flow is. So this is a really easy decision for you to say, this is my cash flow, this is my cash flow from depreciation, and this is both of them combined. And you could see they're split column charts to show you which one is which. It's just visually adding them as a sum. Does that make sense? Okay. That's why it's done that way. And I talked about this. Okay. Down payments. There are some really unusual situations. I just wanna bring them up to your attention in case you're doing some crazy stuff. If you're buying property subject to or getting really creative, there is a chance you could have negative down payment percentage. Where let's say the seller overfinanced their property, they took out money in a cash out refinance, and now you're about to buy that property subject to, where you're making payments on their existing loan, and they may be giving you money in order to come in there and take over that debt. They're gonna give you part of the cash out refinance that they got in order for you to take the deal. In that case, you could have negative down payment. It's really rare, but I just wanted to bring that to your attention. I not even gonna dwell on it, okay. All right, closing cost percentage. You enter the percentage, the spreadsheet tells you the dollar amount. It's typically the same regardless of property type, although the amount can vary a little bit. The amount of closing costs tends to increase with the loan type and the purchase price. The more expensive the property you're buying, the more expensive closing costs tend to be. So when you're calculating what your closing costs are, you do your share of the title insurance because a lot of times the seller has their policy that they're providing for you. And then you have your share, especially if you're getting a loan on title insurance. So you want to figure out what your share of the title insurance is and the fee if you're hiring the title company in order to do the closing. Sometimes it's split. It's negotiating the contract, but it's sometimes it's split between buyer and seller. Sometimes the seller is paying for it. Sometimes the buyer is paying for it or if the attorney's charge you to do that. Any upfront private mortgage insurance premiums, if you're gonna do a prepaid one-time upfront PMI payment, you put that in there, that's if you're putting less than 20% down, or choosing a loan lender program that offers this as an option, you don't necessarily have to do that. Any points you're paying in order to get a better interest rate in a loan, you wanna include that. In some cases, you choose to take a higher interest rate and have the lender credit you back some money so that you have lower closing costs. So lender, call, you call the lender, and lender says, "Hey, look, for a par rate, I'm not going to get into details. Go watch the financing classes. But for a par rate, it's you know five percent." You say, "Well, what if I, what if I wanted to buy down the interest rate? Well, for three thousand dollars, you could buy it down to four point eight seven five. Okay, can I go the other way? Can I get what if I took five point one two five voluntarily? If I took a higher interest rate than what you're quoting me, what would happen then? Well, we would give you three thousand dollars then." Now I need to come to closing with $3,000 less because you voluntarily took a slightly higher interest rate. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So you can get points, you can pay points to have the rate go down, or you can get credited points in order to have a higher rate voluntarily. Cost of your appraisal, a lot of times your appraisal is not going to show up on your uh, closing statement because a lot of times you're going to pay the lender outside of closing. You're going to give them your credit card and they're going to charge you 900 bucks or whatever your appraisals are going for now in order to have your appraisal done. By the way, those can be much more expensive depending on the type of property you're doing. You're buying a five unit or something really, really expensive. Then you're going to, you're basically going to have a little bit more expensive closing costs for those. And some lenders, in some cases may require more than one appraisal. I know there's someone in the room who had an appraisal done on a property. And I think the lender didn't believe that the value is what it was. And so they had to have the the lender required another appraisal. Is that right? I've also seen this come up where you're buying new construction properties where you'll have the preliminary appraisal done and then the appraiser will say, I need to go back out and check to make sure these seven things are done. And sometimes they charge you an extra fee for that. And I remember one client where, man, the appraiser wanted to go out like five times because they kept saying something was not right And it was pretty ugly. The the, the appraisal on that property was like two grand. It was something stupid. And it's a single family home. It was a condo. In fact, the cost of things like your property inspection, surveys, radon tests, pest control tests, and sewer scope, those are all things you'd want to include at part of your closing costs. You may not be paying them at closing, but you should realize that that is part of your calculation for what your return on investment is and what the expense of getting the deal is. If you decide not to include those, your numbers are going to be slightly off. Right? And the less you put down, the more off it will be as a percentage. Because the less you have money in the deal, the more these small expenses matter. You put down, you buy the property for cash, not going to make that big of a deal. You know, missing a $1,000 in there. If you're paying a wholesaler or wholesale fee or real estate agent a commission, that is not already included in the purchase price. This is when you're going to go buy a for sale by owner and you got to pay a real estate agent out of pocket. In those cases, you want to include that as a closing cost. In most cases, if you're buying a property from the MLS, at least right now, and this may change, by the way, but right now, if you're buying a property inside the MLS, a lot of times it's pre-negotiated the fee that is going to be paid to the buyer's agent, okay? And so you don't have to include that separately as a closing cost because it's already baked into the purchase price. But that may change. You heard it here first. Uh, you should not include the seller's share of closing costs in your closing cost numbers, or if your real estate is being paid by the seller from the seller's proceeds, which is how it typically is done for most MLS transactions, these are only your closing costs that we're talking about here. Now you know more about closing costs you ever wanted to know about this field, right? You're, you're like, holy crap, did you do all that stuff in there? Yeah, that's why there should be like a two hour class just on this one. Any questions? Is this helpful? Or should we like stop and just do Q&A? Okay, good. At least one person likes it. Everyone else voted for Q&A, just you, Ann. All right, rent ready costs. So rent ready costs are all those expenses you have after you acquire a property that you need to do in order to get a property ready to rent. It's all the stuff the property needs. It's the same regardless of property type, although it varies depending on what property you have. So really this is like, you go and you have your inspection done and the inspector lists, you know, 14 things that need to be done to your property. They're not worth negotiating over with the seller because you really want the deal and you're not gonna get nitpicky. Maybe you like said to the seller, you were not gonna you know, give them a list of things. That goose is on top of that roof. That's crazy. Yeah, this is, this is literally squirrel going on right now for my ADD. There's geese on the roof for those that are listening to the recording. Where was I? <laughs> rent ready costs. Oh yeah, so, so basically you're at hey, Steve. You're buying a property, you, you basically negotiate with the seller that you're not gonna get nitpicky about things. So when you get your inspection report back, there's like 14 things that need to be repaired. So you know you need to do those things in order to have the property get ready for rent. You gotta put that money somewhere. You put it in rent ready costs. You say, look, I got to set aside $2,000 or whatever it is to do this. And I will tell you, if you're always putting zero in here, that's probably wrong. Because almost every property needs to be at least cleaned. Something needs to be done to that property. So unless you're putting like you know, $500 or $1,000 in here, it's probably incorrect. Yeah, at a minimum, you're changing the locks. So some people do their own lock changing. But I mean, you got to put time in there and you know, buying the stuff. Yeah, I mean, you got to buy locks. I mean, yeah, So there's something in there, right? You're doing that. Although I've seen, this, it's scary. I've seen people not change locks on properties. Yeah, yeah, called locksmith to get it done. Okay. So that's really what it is. If you have any like imminent repairs or immediate things, you put it in there. Cost of materials and labors, others and your own labor. So not just hiring someone, but your labor to do this. Any upgrades for new construction, you're not rolling in. So if you're buying a new construction property and you can't roll in blinds or you're not going to roll in landscaping or backyard fence, this is where you put those numbers. Okay. I said it's highly unusual. An unusual situation. If you're being paid to purchase the property, you could include that fee and rent ready costs. So if you're thinking about, you know, like the subject to example, you could put it in there as another way of doing it. Okay, now let me talk about this weird one. So imagine for a minute, you're analyzing a deal and um, you're buying a single family home and it's got a tenant in there. And the tenant is someone who's lived in the property for 15 years. And the reason they've lived there for 15 years is because the previous landlord always had a soft spot in their heart and they never raised the rent in 15 years. So for a $500,000 house you're buying, they're getting, you're paying you $600 a month in rent. Okay. And that's problematic, right? So what do you do with that? When you analyze a deal and you put in $600, it doesn't look like a deal. So we're typically not doing deal analysis where you put in $600 a month for rent because it looks like a non-deal. Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna put in what the fair market rent is that you could get if this property was not rented to the $600 a month person, okay? Then what you're gonna do is you're gonna say, okay, there's seven months left on their lease. So I have seven months of this below market rent that I've got a stomach. So really, let's say rent is $2,000 a month. So really you're $1,400 a month shy for seven more months before you can turn this property over and get market rent. So what you should do in rent ready costs is you should take $1,400, the amount that you're short, multiply by the number of months left in their lease because you're not gonna renew their lease at $600. They're gonna move out at the end. And now you're gonna rent the the property for fair market value. So you do $1,400 times seven months and that gets put into your rent-ready costs. Because what you're doing by doing this, you're saying, look, I'm not gonna do this below market rent and see my cash on cash there. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say, I'm gonna set aside this amount of money, $1,400 times seven months, and I'm gonna have that sitting in a separate account. I'm gonna consider it part of my initial investment in order to acquire the property. It's a cost for me to get into this deal. It's a one-time expense that happens because the is under-rented. And you're gonna use that because then that becomes, part of your denominator when you calculate your return forever, because it was originally an expense that you had when you acquired the deal. Does everyone understand why I did it that way? Okay. So that's what I'm talking about here. Dealing with properties that are already rented. Figure out how much above or below fair market rent your rents are and use the difference for the duration of the lease. Now this can happen the other way too. You could find a property where it's being rented for above what you think you can get. They like hit a home run. Someone really wanted that property and they paid $300 more than that. So You could say, hey, look, I got this $300 premium on this property and you can give yourself that as kind of like a reverse credit. Okay? All right. Any questions on rent-ready costs? Sweet. All right, total invested. So it sums up the amount for your uh, seller concessions, the down payment, the closing costs, and the rent-ready costs and gives you a total amount invested. Some of those are negatives, right? Your, Your seller concessions is a credit to you. So that's what total invested does. It's a calculation for you. You don't need to do it. All right, next section, mortgage. So this is where I am, following along in a spreadsheet. Go ahead and make notes wherever you want to. I'm on the mortgage section. The mortgage amount is calculated. It's done automatically. It doesn't change based on the type of property. The mortgage amount is automatically calculated for you. It's based on the purchase price and the down payment. Easy. Mortgage interest rate. Where do we get this from? The lender. Do you go to a website and look it up? How many people go to a website to look up what their mortgage rate will be? Pro- yeah, ballpark. That's the problem, though. It's like... What do you do? You, you're you off by a quarter of a point or an eighth of a point. That's problematic, right? That can oftentimes make the difference whether you're buying it or not. In my opinion, you should call a lender and find out. And this changed daily, and that's the challenge, but you know, you get in a good relationship with and say, look, I'm looking at some properties today, what are rates doing? And they'll give you your number based on your file that they've already looked at, and your credit score and what you're, you've got going on. So let's kind of give you a change. So easy enough, just email them and they'll tell you what's going on there. It will vary depending on the type of property, If you're buying a five, five unit or more, if you're buying a duplex, you're buying a single family home or a condo that's not warrantable or something like that. Your credit score, so you need to call your lender and get qualified. The loan type, if you're doing FHA or VA or conventional or whatever it is, and whether you're an owner occupant or an investor. So whether you're gonna live in the property or you're gonna buy it and not move in, that can affect your rate. You can do this, but the spreadsheet's not well suited for modeling changes in variable rate loans. So you could go in there and say, buying this property and it can become variable in year four and it could be within this range and just rerun it a whole bunch of times and have it be formulaic. But I don't recommend it. If anything, go ahead and put in like your worst case to see how it would perform if you had to. Or better yet, don't get variable rate loans. That's probably the best answer. All right. So I think I talked about that. Any questions on mortgage interest rate? You haven't called me out at all. Am I doing that good or are you just like sleeping? Okay, good. That's good enough. Loan term. So this is based on the loan you choose, it can vary significantly. The overwhelming majority of the loans you're probably gonna get if you're doing buy and holds with conventional financing, house hacking or nomading is probably gonna be a 30-year fixed rate loan, okay? Those are the loans we usually recommend. So in most cases, it's gonna be 360 months for this field. If you're doing a 15-year loan, it's 180 months. You can use the formula here and say 12 times whatever number of years you're doing, but for most of you, it's gonna be 360, you're just never gonna adjust it. And it might be difficult to find 30-year financing for five plus units, which we talked about before. We are not going to be able to go ahead and get 30 year financing for buying like, you know, a 12 unit apartment building. It's really, really hard to do. Any questions on this? All right. Private mortgage insurance. There's this whole two hour class on this. So I'm going to give you the really short version. It's not usually used for five plus units, any type of commercial buildings, because in those cases, you're usually putting at least 20% down. A lot of times even more than that. It's used when you put less than 20% down on a property. There's an entire class on it. Call your lender for your exact number. You can't go look online and say, what's my PMI going to be? Because it actually depends on how many people are on the loan, what your credit scores are, loan to value, type of property. There's a whole bunch of things that go into it and which company they're using. Certain lenders are required to use one company or pick from three, and other lenders may be using totally different ones. And so you're not, honestly, when you're shopping for a lender, one of the things you've got to include in that, especially if you're doing Nomad and you're only putting 5% down is, what the PMI is from that particular lender and how that works in your favor or against you, okay? So enter in the percentage uh, of the original loan balance for this or guess and check until it matches the dollar amount. So this is one of those fields where I think you're probably gonna get a dollar amount, but the real estate financial planner wants it as a percentage because in case you change the number on the property and you make copies of it and you're buying it as a template in the future, there's reasons we use it as a percentage there, but a lot of times the lender is going to tell you your PMI payment is $114.86 a month. So what you'll want to do is you'll want to go ahead and adjust the percentage until it equals that whatever I said, $114.86 a month. Okay, so you'll want to guess and check using this percent until you get there. I, I would, in a, in a dream world, I would give you that number and you can put it as a dollar amount because that's probably the way you do it. And as I say this, I think maybe I should change it, but right. But the reason why it's done that way is when you, when you copy this to the real estate financial planner account, you're saying, I want to buy this property every year or whenever I can for the next five or 10 years. We use it as a percentage of the value because if you kept it as a dollar, it would always be low. So, I don't know, to be determined. If you guys keep using it and you want to complain, go ahead and email me and maybe I'll change it. Any questions on PMI? Yeah. Okay. You said earlier you wouldn't be afraid of PMI. Can you just no. expand on that? Yeah, so that's great. So PMI is is very similar to that discussion I had where I said, look, you're not putting 15% extra down, so you don't have to put up that $60,000 more. PMI is just another expense so you don't have to put up that $60,000. So if PMI is $100 a month and you're negative $100 a month in cash flow, now you say it's $200 because it actually includes it in the cash flow calculation for you already. P- PMI is just part of that expense of being able to not have to come up with an additional $60,000. So you look at your numbers and you say, is this, st- is this still a good investment for me overall? And am I willing to pay the PMI or not? And you just make a decision, right? If you're, if you're trying to acquire a property a year, you're trying to do like, you know, dollar cost averaging or dollar value averaging, depending on how you look at it, for real estate instead of stocks, and you're doing no man, you're buying a property every year and you're moving in, you keep doing that, then PMI is an expense of being able to do that. Because you don't have to come up with a full 20% down. If you can come up with a 20% down, maybe you don't even move in, right? You just kind of buy properties. But if you're doing 5% and you're kind of conserving your down payments, this is a way to do it, provided you have enough income to support that as you continue to acquire them. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It drops off after a period of time for a lot of loans. FHA, not. Yeah. So Nick in the back is saying with the rapid appreciation we've had, it drops off pretty quick. And yes, that's true. But not, we don't always live in really highly appreciating markets, right? Like we could see like whatever we've seen, 9% a year for the next three years. And then we could see some negative appreciation. We could see property values decline because we just gained 27% or 30% or whatever we did compounded. Maybe we're going to give a little back. Don't, don't be afraid of that, right? When you're, when you're buying, you're doing like dollar cost averaging or dollar value averaging, if you're familiar with that concept in stocks, you're putting a certain amount of money or you're buying a certain amount of stock and you're doing that every year so that when the market's up, you sometimes buy. Uh-huh. Oh no, so it's not plugged in. Oh, so I was saying when you're dollar cost averaging, dollar value averaging, you're doing the stocks, you're, when the stock market is up, you buy fewer shares for the same dollar amount you're invested. When the, when the real estate market is up, you know, you're buying one house. You're buying because it's the smallest unit you can do. But when the market's down, you're getting a better deal. So when the market is up, you're buying properties. You're kind of like riding the wave for all the ones you own. But the ones you're buying are a little bit more expensive. When the market's going down, yeah, you're losing value on these temporarily. But you're buying slightly better deals on the ones that are down here. Okay. So that's how I look, I look at it if you're thinking about it that way. Okay. All right, so the next field is, when do you drop private mortgage insurance? At what loan to value? And so, as Nick said, a lot of lenders say, once you get to 80% loan to value, they will drop the PMI payment off. So you can put in at what percentage your lender tells you here. Some lenders will tell you it's 78%, some will tell you 80%, whatever it is that they tell you. It's usually 78 or 80, depending on who it is that's telling you that. Sometimes they don't know, but put it in there around there. And so usually when your property value then gets to the point where you have 20% of equity, you're 80% loan to value, then your PMI payment can go away if you ask the lender, look, you know, my property value is this. Can I have my PMI removed? Anyone had their PMI removed? What'd you guys, what were you told? 80%? 78? Did it matter? It was like, it was like 20%, 27% equity. Okay, so what he was told was for the recording that if he just kept making his payments when it got to 78% naturally, it would automatically drop off. Or if he paid for an appraisal, um, and the appraisal showed that there was 20% equity, 80% loan to value, then it would drop off then. So you could pay a fee in order to have it go away. Is that what you guys were told to? Yours different? Okay. We have one who couldn't remember and the other one said, yes, that was true. are well, you're like me. You're too young to be losing your memory like that. Oh, I actually didn't know that. So apparently there's a two-year minimum for PMI for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Oh, someone's arguing that they may be lender dependent. So, And again, this is why you need to talk to your lender and find out and it could change. And these change all the time, right? Rules for loans do change. So by the time you listen to this recording, it may be totally different. And if you refinance where you still have PMI, then it starts over. Yeah. All right, so often use 80% here. If your loan does not automatically drop PMI off once your loan hits a specific loan to value, for example, FHA loans do not automatically drop off. So if you're doing FHA loans, PMI is forever. Doesn't matter your loan of value. Once you get an FHA loan, You're paying PMI for the duration. It's one of the bad things about doing FHA. One of the good things is you can buy duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes with three and a half percent down. And the interest rate's not that bad, but you're never getting rid of that PMI. You just should calculate it in as part of your payment and figure out what that looks like, okay? Most conventional loans, though, it drops off at some point. In the event that it is an FHA loan, though, use zero, okay? All right, income, should be easy. Monthly rent. Use the fair market rent you'd expect you can get from the property. I have a whole class on how to determine fair market rent. I Can't teach a two hour class on that right now. I use rent ready costs to adjust for current rents that are not fair market. Remember this is that example of someone really had a soft spot in their heart and they were getting $600 a month for a $2,000 a month property. This is where you'd still use the 2000 here, but you'd make the adjustment in rent ready costs in order to do that. You could total monthly rents for all units. So if you're buying a fiveplex. You can put down equals and then put the five different rents you're getting or do, you know, I've got uh, buy the 20 unit and then 10 of the units are one bedrooms and I'm getting 7.95 for those. And, you know, I've got five two bedrooms and I'm getting 8.95 for those and I've got five three bedrooms and I'm getting whatever I just said there plus a couple hundred bucks. For those, you can go ahead and do a formula in order to calculate it. That way, when you go look back, instead of just having one number and being like, what is that made up of? What was I using for those? Now you can see this number of units times this rate plus this number of units times this rate, plus this number of units times this rate, if you're gonna break it out that way. Does that make sense? Okay, well, what was the question? I don't wanna use quotations to pull. Yeah, yeah, if, if you don't know how to do formulas in Excel, go look it up, because I'm not gonna teach that tonight, but yes, there's, there's, there's rules about that. As you have a question, you get the Renovating a place is
1: gonna take a month or two to get it ready. Yeah. Does that mean the loss of rent, you should not be considered
0: loss of rent, but also goes back into rent-ready costs? Yeah, so that's a weird one. It's like a personal preference in some ways. I think best the, probably the best practice there is to put in your personal costs or holding costs for a month or two to do it, but not a loss of rent. That's how I would probably look at it. It feels like it's a decreased rent, similar to the fair market
1: rent versus the it, other one. You still got fair market rent. You're just not earning it for a month or two because it's a discounted rent because you're renovating
0: yeah maybe i I would personally i just put in what my holding costs were as like a expense because your rent was zero right right so zero minus whatever your expenses are is going to be what your holding costs are for that period so when, when i said you were getting six hundred dollars that's the same calculation right because you had well, you, oh, i guess you had personal well, I, I, so
1: i'm thinking about the the graph about the return in dollars for year one because yeah. you now you're assuming you do get the full rental yeah minus the vacancy so i'm sort of saying well that's what you don't get yeah the- that's interesting i've uh, i've also thinking deeply about what when the start of year one is whether yes. it's the day after you purchase or when it's rent
0: ready and i think it needs to be the day after your purchase i agree with that i think it's the day you purchase in case you have a you know six month period this is sort of like burr right this is the yeah. this is the problem with the burr property and why the spreadsheet was not specifically designed for that, because that's yeah. what it is. You're talking about a bur property. We have three months of holding costs while you do rehab, right. and then you're going to refire. You're going to keep the property and do it that way. So, yeah, I'd want to think about that a little more. My gut tells me you put your holding costs in there, but you're saying... My, my, my feeling is that we should start, like, year one on the day after purchase,
1: and then that anything that's even accurate after that, whether it's fair market rent that's off because of the old lady thing, yeah, whether it's loss of rent for another reason or because it takes you a while to spend the rent ready costs. It doesn't matter. Put that all in the investment on day zero.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Good point. Yeah, see, actually, I do, I'm, I'm glad you did. It. glad you came here tonight. That's awesome. All right. So I talked about that uh, total for all the units. Build back for utilities and parts of HOA. So if you, know, you got a triplex and you have one central water line coming in, you're going to build that back. Make sure you include that in here and stuff like that too. In our market, it's customary for the landlord to pay the HOA fee. That's customary in our marketplace. This may differ in other markets. In other markets, you may be able to pass it on. However, if part of the HOA is a utility or a benefit to the tenant, we may bill back, for example, garbage. In some of my neighborhoods, garbage is lumped in with the HOA. And so sometimes we'll break that out and say, hey, look, you have a garbage utilities fee. It's whatever it is, $25 a month. Or I had no idea what garbage is. Uh, $45 a month, whatever the number it. And so you can bill that back separately and pull it out of the HOA if you're thinking about it that way. And some HOAs there's like basic cables included or non-ponable water fee. And so you could break some of those out. It's gonna be hard for you to break out everything for the HOA, so, but some of them, I think you can, you could rationally make a good case for doing that. All right, any questions on monthly rent? Uh, monthly rent for nomads, typically assume, and this is incorrect, I'm gonna tell you something that's wrong, so pay attention. So when we nomad, by definition, you're getting an owner-occupant loan. You have to move into the property. You have to live there for a year. That's a rule of Nomad, like the, you will commit loan fraud if you don't. Okay, so don't do that. So how do we analyze a Nomad deal if we're really renting in year two? We pretend year two is year one. So we pretend we bought a property and that we're renting it in year one when we know we're not. And we run the numbers as if. It's gonna be off a little bit, but that's how we do it. Because otherwise it gets really wacky. And all of these charts on here are all year one. And so if you have zero for rent in year one, it's gonna look really weird, okay? So we're gonna pretend year two is year one and just pretend that you're renting it right away, which you're not, unless you're buying a duplex, triplex, or a fourplex, in which case you're getting some rent that's just below market for that first year, okay? Uh, So most folks will use what they can get in rent today. In many markets, this will be slightly lower than what you may be able to get a year from now as rents sort of go up a little bit, Uh, especially if you start searching for your, However, and I think you guys have experienced some of this, especially in competitive markets, where you don't quite have the time to plan when you're buying your replacement property, you may be forced to accept a slightly lower than ideal rent because your lender requires you have a signed lease in place. And so for that first year, you may get screwed a little bit, right? Right? You guys are smiling. You guys know about this? Yeah. So- yeah, it, renting in January, like that's another bad example. But th- that's the idea. Sometimes on that first transition out, you're a little short. That's what you got to do. You got to suck it up. It's, it, it, would you rather not buy the property? It's almost like a cost of acquiring that property, your rent difference. In fact, you could argue you put it in your rent-ready cost on the next deal. I'm short on the last property going out. The numbers still look amazing. Okay, so that's what I talked about there. Other income. This can be different for multifamily properties or single-family homes, but typically what other income usually is, it's stuff like if you've got an on-site laundry facility or you're you're kind of like providing internet and you're charging tenants an extra fee for access to internet or uh, you're renting out garage spaces or a storage closet or something like that or covered parking. Those are examples of other income. Any questions on other income? All right. Annual expenses. This is that next section there. So, vacancy as a percentage. You enter in the percentage and the spreadsheet's gonna tell you the dollar amount. Vacancy rates can vary between unit types. For example, vacancy may be lower on single family homes than five units or above, or 10 units, or something like that. I'll typically recommend a vacancy rate of 3% if you are a superstar of property management. If you are not a superstar property management, it's probably gonna be higher. Unless you're under renting your property and then it's gonna be lower. Okay. So, and this is that's a really good point. So If you're really pushing rent, you may have a higher vacancy. If you're really under-renting it, you may have lower vacancy. You're trying to find this kind of delicate balance between a reasonable amount of time to fill your properties at a reasonably good market rent. Make sense? Because rent's not an exact number. Traditionally, we'll see slightly lower vacancy rates for single-family homes with it increasing with the number of units. Single-family homes are typically the lowest vacancy, then duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, then large commercial residential type buildings. What you use will depend on your property management skills. Are you starting 60 to 90 days in advance to advertise the property and the state of your real estate market? In a slower, softer real estate market, your vacancy is probably gonna be higher. So you need to be more aggressive. You need to make sure your skills are on, uh, peaked out for doing that. And if you don't know what number to use in your marketplace, pick a number and you're gonna get better with this over time and it may be wrong in your estimate or go call a property manager and find out what vacancy rates are for for your market. But realize one property management company could have a very low vacancy rate and tell you a very low number because maybe they're renting things a little bit lower than they should, uh, or they're starting really early, or they're really good. And another one you could call up, another company with a lot of units could call up and they could tell you it's much higher because they're trying to get top of the market rents or they're kind of doing it once the property becomes vacant or you know it varies depending on the property manager and their skill level too. And the types of properties they have in their portfolio. Uh, and I talk about this, vac- vacancy rate is also a function of your rent amount. In general, the higher you're pushing rent, the higher your vacancy will be. Any questions on vacancy? Property tax percentage. You enter the percentage. A spreadsheet tells you the dollar amount. Regardless of property type, use the actual property taxes for the property. But here's where it's problematic. You go to the MLS. You're searching for a property. You sa- it says there, hey, look, property taxes are, insert number here, whatever number you say there. But realize that could be a senior exemption rate or a homestead exemption rate where the property taxes are artificially low and you don't know that. So you could try to find out what the overall approximate tax rate is for an entire city. You could go do research and try to figure that out or you could look up a whole bunch of properties and put a spreadsheet together and kind of figure out what the average is for 300 properties to kind of get an idea, just to kind of figure out what it should be. And and so you wanna use a real number, not just automatically use what they have in there, especially if you're going in and buying a property and you've seen massive appreciation. Sometimes when you buy a property, the taxing entity will go and update it on sale sometimes they will always wait to the every other year that they do the tax updates or whatever they're doing. So it depends on the market and how they do that calculation. But you could be at the tail end of an 18% appreciation run over those last two years and property taxes could be 20% higher than what you thought they were going to be. So something to think about. Also with new construction, you can't go look up what the value of the vacant land was and what they're being taxed at because that's not like real life. You may have a period of time where you have a really low tax rate when you buy a brand new property, but in most cases, they update that pretty quickly. And it's gonna be based on whatever the, usually the builder will give you an estimate. We're estimating property taxes are gonna be about whatever it is, 1% or 2% of the property value. Okay, talk about that. Any other questions? Yeah, yes, Metro taxes would be included here because Metro taxes are typically included as part of the property taxes in many cases. Yeah, if in your market, because not everyone's listening from locally, if in your market, they're not, they're, they're done separately, you can combine them and put them in here. Good point though, Nick. Yep. Any other questions? Cool. Property insurance. You enter this amount and the spreadsheet tells you the percentage because you're often quoted this number from your insurance agent. So you call up your insurance agent and you say, look, I'm thinking about buying a $400,000 single family home. What would insurance approximately be on that? And maybe give them an, an actual property and get the, the coverage you want and give them your credit score so it's quoted to you because those all have an impact. It's a two-hour class on property insurance. But basically, if you go in there and you find out what that is, and then you adjust it a little bit based on, it's a little bit more expensive property, it's a little bit less expensive property, then when you're ready to make an offer on something, go firm this number up with your insurance agent. But don't go harass your insurance agent doing an insurance quote, a full workup quote on every property you're analyzing. That's just dumb, okay? Just use a really rough estimate. You can go firm it up and verify your assumptions once you get more serious. Insurance can be less, oh, this is really important stuff. Okay, so your insurance can be less for condos and townhomes than for single family homes because a lot of times the insurance policy you're buying is covering your risk, what the insurance company will need to replace if you have a claim. And in a lot of cases with condos and townhomes, the HOA covers studs out or the exterior of the building. And so part of your, part of your HOA fee is for the HOA to cover all that exterior maintenance. And if there's hail damage on the roof or if there's damage to the sides. And so you're not paying for insurance to cover those things here. You're paying for it in your HOA, okay? So in this case, your insurance may be lower for condos and townhomes, which will help offset a lot of times those higher HOAs. So when you think about, you're analyzing a deal and you're thinking to yourself, hey, I've got this deal I'm analyzing, but the HOA is killing the deal. Well, maybe, but in a lot of cases, part of that HOA is really maintenance on your property or insurance on your property. And so you'll usually give up a little bit, like lower your number slightly for maintenance and lower your number slightly for insurance because the HOA is covering some of those. And you can use, I'm gonna reference the capital expense and the maintenance and the capital expense spreadsheet a little bit here, but you could do those spreadsheets and figure out what you're paying and figure out what the insurance company is paying And then kind of make the adjustments there so that it's a little bit fairer comparison. Does that make sense? Anyone lost by what I just said? Because that's kind of an important point. It's honestly one of the reasons this class exists because I think this is what Steve was getting at when he was, buy duplexes. Yeah. I mean, duplexes, sometimes you have less maintenance with a duplex if everything is sort of independent and you have one shared roof, but sometimes duplexes are even more expensive. You have a, shared entryway and you've got to be responsible for maintaining that and so this i mean it really depends on the property it's not just automatically x is better than y i don't know that's how i would say it okay let me make sure i covered all this Search could be less talked about that it's coming kind to of hoa for condos be responsible for the exterior often buyers are responsible for studs in. we talked about that still need to verify with with the hoa so you want to check with them and make sure Part of the HOA can informally be attributed to and justify reduced maintenance number in the spreadsheet. Call your insurance agent to get an accurate estimate of what insurance will be. Watch the two-hour class on insurance. I think I talked about that. Okay. HOA dues. So that's the next field. HOA dues tend to be higher on properties where the HOA is responsible for maintaining significant portions of the property. If the HOA is really just sort of a compliance arm, their HOA fees tend to be really low. If your HOA covers exterior maintenance and roofs and a golf course and a pool and everything else, expect your HOA to be much higher, okay? You're less likely to have HOA dues as the number of units increases, most likely to have with a condo or townhome, more likely with a single family home, less likely with duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes, and least likely with five plus units. Although there's exceptions to that, but I think that's a general rule of thumb that you're less likely to see HOAs the more units you go. Uh, And properties where the HOA dues include some maintenance, any type of maintenance at all, you might be able to justify using that lower maintenance number and insurance costs. And this can offset part of that HOA fee to make condos towns more competitive from a return on investment perspective. You know, I didn't cover it here, but we need to talk about this. So there's a, let's say you're in a big neighborhood and you have a a huge house store comes through and, you know, the HOA is responsible for roofs. And they realize that 90% of all the properties need new roofs now, and they don't have enough reserves in order to handle the they're kind of like deductible for having all the roofs done. So they're short. So what does the HOA do when they don't have enough money to do the repairs on the properties that you own? They do what's called a special assessment. So they come to you and they say, look, we're short uh, and we need to have a certain amount of reserve. So we're going to go ahead and say, each of you needs to cough up $1,000 per unit to cover your share of the deductible to have these roofs done because we didn't expect a hailstorm to do all these roofs at one time. So they come to you to say, okay, we all need $1,000 from you. What if you don't have the $1,000? That's a problem. But you can buy insurance to cover that deductible. So if the HOA comes to you and they say there's a special assessment for whatever, roof, sidewalks, whatever they need to do that for, you can purchase a separate insurance policy. You need to talk to your insurance agent about this, where the insurance company will then pay for the special assessment on your behalf. So you're paying a monthly fee of whatever it is, $25 a month. And if there is a special assessment at any point during the time that you're paying that policy, then the HO, the insurance company will cover that special assessment fee. So if I were personally buying an HOA or condo, I would always buy the special assessment insurance, in my opinion, okay? Okay, any questions on that? Utilities, utilities can vary depending on the property. You're least likely to be paying any utilities on a single family home, because this is the owner, the landlord paid utilities. So if you're renting a single family home to somebody, in most cases, that tenant is gonna transfer utilities into their own name and they're gonna be responsible for paying all those. You're not gonna be responsible. But what if you have a triplex, where it's a type of triplex where you walk into a a part of the building and it's like an interior sort of like lobby, and then you've got three doors to the three different units on the inside. Who's paying the electric bill for the centralized unit? Who's paying for cleaning in the centralized unit? You know, so those types of things If you're paying some type of utility for the properties that's not in the tenant's name, then you need to put that in here. It can vary depending on property type. You're least likely to have that with the single family homes, as we discussed. You're less likely with condos and townhomes, and you're more likely with duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, fiveplexes as the number of units and common areas and amenities increase. So just realize that your probability increases with the number of units. Typically, you'd get this information from the MLS, brokers, sellers, and leases. Did I cover, like, did I hit, like, where you'd get the numbers from for everything? Did I miss anything? Look down your sheet, tell me if I miss anything, so I, I just wanna make sure. Is there anything on there you're like, where do I get this number from? So I think Kevin's not way on top of this thing. Or maybe I'm doing such a good job that I catch it on every one, but. He asked me about where you get the number from for appreciation? Oh, well, I mean, it's predicting the future. So obviously you roll a six-sided die, and if you get a six, you roll it again, and you add them. What number for appreciation? 10% for appreciation, says Kevin. Make any claims against him if you don't see 10% in your properties. This is his address, I'll give it to you. You know, maybe. I I could probably make it a non-deal if I really, really struggle to do that. But you're right, everything starts looking pretty good. Which is why, like, last couple years has been amazing here. I got no unhappy clients, that's for sure. All right, got my water. All right, so we talked about utilities, any questions on that? Other expenses, and I combine these two into one slide. You're slightly more likely to have additional other expenses on properties with more than one units. This is like if you have to do snow removal on a fourplex, because who's gonna shovel snow when you've got shared walkways and stuff? Or lawn care, or things like that. Most likely at five plus units as a number of common areas and additional shared amenities increase. You typically get these numbers from the MLS, brokers, sellers, and leases. Although my experience is that they're very rarely accurate, so you gotta you gotta use your personal experience to kind of estimate what you really think they should be. And it sure helps if you have other properties. You're like, oh, I have another templex, and my landscaping costs for that are this. Let me go ahead and use that for this one. But if you don't have those actual numbers, sometimes it's really hard to estimate. All right, maintenance percentage. Maintenance can vary depending on the property type. It tends to increase as the number of units and the number of common areas and additional shared amenities increase. Think about this, if you gotta maintain a central area, that tends to increase your costs. Single-family home where you're responsible for all maintenance tends to be higher than condos and townhomes where the HOA is responsible for some maintenance. We talked about this idea. Part of the HOA can be informally allocated for maintenance instead. Some investors will include, or at least mix in some capital expenses with maintenance. So if you haven't watched the two-hour class on capital expenses, I would strongly recommend you watch that because it's like mind-blowing. But the idea is that some things some people consider to be capital expenses are probably maintenance and some things some people consider to be maintenance are probably really capital expenses. And so you try to figure out like where the blend is for what percentage you use here, what percentage you use for CapEx, just between the two of them, you need to cover everything. Think of it that way. So in that class with, on CapEx, I have a basic spreadsheet, an advanced spreadsheet. I'll show you those, I think, on the next slide. And then keep track of your maintenance and capital expense numbers over time to get a better feel for your own numbers. And as we see uh, periods of massive inflation, what should you expect to see with maintenance and capital expense costs? To go up, right? A lot. You were thinking they were going to go up you know, 3% a year, and now we saw whatever inflation was, 9% or 8%, whatever number they're quoting you. Then realize you're going to see a pretty big uptick in that. All right, so advance for condos and townhomes where some maintenance is handled by the HOA. Estimate the portion responsible in the HOA fee and then subtract that from what it should be to do your reduced percentage. So you go do the calculation to find out, oh, the HOA is responsible for A, B, and C. That usually costs X dollars per year. And my maintenance number is $3,000 per year. I can subtract the number that the HOA is responsible for. So I really only need to do this dollar amount, which is this percentage. So do that math for yourself. CapEx, same type of idea. They could vary depending on property type, similar to maintenance, except these are less frequent, often larger expenses. One of them I quote as a percentage of gross rent, that's maintenance. The other one I quote in dollars per month. Or this is annual actually, so dollars per year. All right, these are examples of the two spreadsheets in that CapEx class. I really recommend you go watch those. This is the basic one. The basic one you put in, the cost in today's dollars of all these different things that you're going to do, how frequently and number of years that you replace them. And then it will take an inflation rate into effect and tell you, this is what it will cost this number of years in the future. So this is what my yearly cost is that I need to save. This is how much I need to save each month. So it tells you how much you need to save for the year's costs and how much you need to save for the month's costs in order to have all these things covered with inflation, this number of years out for one use. So that does the basic one. The advanced one is more complicated because it does the cost in today's dollars, the frequency, and then you can put in how old the thing is today. So you may only have, you know, instead of 10 years for an air conditioner, you may be five years in. So you really only have five years to save up to replace an AC. So that'll take that into account and it'll adjust all the different years for all the different units. And then it also takes into account if you're putting money aside, what you're earning on that money in some type of savings accounts, And if you're increasing the amount you're saving each year with inflation or some other number. So the advanced one does a whole bunch of calculations. It's almost like cash flow planning for CapEx. And it shows you your account balance over time and sees if you ever go below zero and shows you when they all happen and how big order of magnitude they are, like how large the expenses are. And it sums up all of them in this bottom one. So the advanced one is for someone who's like, yeah, I really, really wanna know and have an understanding of CapEx. The basic one should get you close. Management does not tend to vary based on property type, although with some properties, especially larger multifamilies, you may be hit with your property manager minimums, which would make your percentage higher than you would have estimated. For example, if you're renting, you know, you've got like a 20 unit and there's a whole bunch of like one bedroom units in there, like studio or efficiency apartments in there. And you know, they're renting for 550 a month and your property manager's minimum is $600 a month. You may be hitting the minimum with all those. So just realize that. You get this number from your property manager, and if your quoted property management fee is about ten percent, you should probably expect it to be a little higher than that with all the extra fees they add on. So it's probably going to be eleven or twelve. So if they tell you it's ten, it's probably going to be a little higher than ten. It's very rare, in my opinion and experience, that the property management number that they quote you is the actual expense you pay to them. Okay. Any questions on this? Yeah, Andrew, you want my?
1: Are you counting like the first month's rent as part when that happens as part of that, or is that a separate?
0: That's a really good question. So in, in this particular spreadsheet, I combine them all together. So you'll want to you merge those into one. So if, you, if your property manager says it's a half month's rent every year for lease renewal or putting a new tenant in there, then you calculate out what the property management fee on all 12 months is plus a half month's rent and figure out what that would be as a percentage and do those. And then I'd probably bump it up for all the incidental expense in addition to that. So yeah, it's, it's not intended to be broken out. In the other spreadsheets, some people will break out you know, property management, somewhat like steady state property management fee. And then they have like a lease renewal fee or a lease origination fee separately. I combine them into one rather than do two. Good question. Any other questions on this? All right, so this is the depreciation details on the bottom. So land value percentage. So what percentage of the property price was the value of the land when you bought it? Uh, if you're buying a condo or a ta- uh, just a condo, usually they don't have any land value. If you're buying a town home, A lot of times they will have land value. Talk to your CPA though, about whether or not they're going to try to reduce your condo for like the shared land fee or something like that. Some of them like to do that. I actually don't know what the right way to do it is, but I think some of them will do like, it's a condo. I don't own any land. So my land value is zero. And some will say, well, you're, you're built on something. And so we got to kind of attribute it to that land and I'm not sure which way they do it. Anyone know like what their CPA does? Okay. Yeah. No one knows. It's a mystery. So that's the land value percentage, because when you depreciate a property, what we're trying to figure out here, one of the reasons why we ask these questions is we're trying to figure out what the depreciation benefit, what the tax benefit of owning a rental property is from the government. And then what we need to know to calculate that is how much of the purchase price was land because you can't depreciate the land if you only depreciate the building. So we need to know what percentage was land. Then we also need to know whether it's a commercial or residential property. And by commercial and residential, I don't mean you know five units and above. I mean whether people live there or not. So if you're doing an industrial building or you know some type of like other commercial thing, which I can't think of right now, but something where people don't live in, that's commercial and that's at a different time period. And then residential is 27 and a half years. And then lastly, I need to know what your effective income tax rate is to estimate what that cash flow from depreciation will be for you. I need to know what your tax rate is so that I can say, hey, look, you're going to be able to depreciate this amount of money. And at your tax rate, it's about this much per month for you. Okay. So what the land percentage is, then we're asking about property type, single family home, condos, townhomes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and five plus units. We're typically using R just residential. So you're doing an R or a C here. And if you put an R there, it's going to use 27.5 years. If you put a C, it's going to use 39 years. The overwhelming majority of you will not use 39 years. If you would put a C here, you would know. You would know. Okay. So use R unless you know otherwise. And then finally, your effective income tax rate. It's the same regardless of the property type. It's used to estimate that cash flow from depreciation benefit. We multiply the gross depreciation amount times your tax rate to estimate, it's only an estimate, how much your tax benefits would be in cash flow to you. So here's my, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a CPA. Here's the layman's version of what depreciation is. Let's say you make $100,000 a year between you and your spouse and you own a property. And after you take out the value of the land, the building itself divided by 27 and a half years is $10,000. Okay. So after you take out the value of the land, you take the value of the building, you divide by 27 and a half years, and that equals $10,000. That $10,000 is what I call gross depreciation. You're not going to hear your accountant or your CPA talk to you about calling it gross depreciation. That's like a real estate investor James, James kind of term. Okay, So gross depreciation is $10,000. So what it really means on your tax return, again, layman's, go talk to your CPA about actual details. Instead of having to pay taxes on hundred grand now, now you only have to pay taxes on hundred grand minus the $10,000 in depreciation. So you're really paying taxes on $90,000. So if you think about it, the $10,000 that you got in gross depreciation, if you multiply that by whatever your tax rate is, that tells you how much you did not have to pay in taxes. So $10,000 times 20% effective tax rate says about $2,000 a year is what you're actually not having to pay in taxes by owning that rental. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, it is only for rental properties. So if you are renting out part of the property you're living in, I believe you could take some depreciation but not the full amount. Good for house hackers, yep. Once you convert your property from an owner-occupant as a nomad, which you can not take depreciation for, in year two, you can start taking depreciation. Okay? If you don't qualify, if you're like a high-income earner and you don't qualify to take depreciation, go ahead and put zero here, and it will actually remove depreciation benefit from there. If you think, hey, look, I make too much and I don't want to see it, or I make too much and I'm never going below this income, then you can go ahead and use zero. But technically, depreciation rolls over and you can take it later, It's my understanding. Again, I'm not a tax guy. All right, no other questions on this, and this is only an estimate for depreciation. it'll It'll be a slightly different calculation for you on your taxes. All right, defaults and overrides. So we've we're done with that input section for taking your notes. Now I'm moving on to this thing, but there's not a lot for you to look at. So I'm going to run through a couple ones on here that you may want to modify, the more common ones for you to modify. You can modify whatever you want. You could see all the ones that are kind of like filled in shaded squares. Those are all manila colored. You can edit all those. All right? However, these are the most common that you'll wanna override, in my opinion. Appreciation rate. Kevin thinks properties are going up 10% a year. You could go in here, find the appreciation tab, and modify that from, excuse me, my default, which I'll show you what it is, to Kevin's default of 10%. I wouldn't use 10% if I were me, but Kevin would recommend everyone use 10%. Then everything looks like a deal, okay? So appreciation is one of them. Rent appreciation rate, how fast rents are going up. That's another one I think you may want to modify, especially if you're in a market where rents are not going up or property values are not going up. Although lately, it seems like every market has property values going up. But there have been historical periods of time where property values in certain markets have not appreciated, especially certain types of properties. So you'll find like, you know, they're good cash flow markets, but their property values are the same price they were as they were 10 years ago. Although that's probably not true recently. But maybe it's not going to be true in the future either. I mean, maybe it's going to be fixed. Maintenance, especially for new construction. I'll, I have a slide on this. Sales costs. If you're a real estate agent and you don't have to pay, you know, the uh, cooperative part of the real estate commission, you can go ahead and reduce the sales costs on here as one example. Uh, and refi costs. So if if you your lender is quoting you a different number than what I have in here for your refi costs, then go ahead and change that too. If you find yourself wanting to use a different default for an override, like you're like, James, I'm tired of going in here and actually changing your appreciation rate every single time or your rent appreciation, or the refi cost or what my cost of sale are. Then go ahead and change it once. Use that as your default spreadsheet that you use from the very beginning. Then only use yours. Don't download mine every time. Does it make sense? So edit it once. You don't need to do it all the time. All right, so override. So this is an example of how to do the appreciation rate. You just, this is in the overrides tab. You can see it on your handout. This can vary depending on property type. Some people believe that single family homes appreciate faster than condos or townhomes. The data I have does not show that to be necessarily true. They're really close, but you know, maybe over a long period of time that that is true. Although it doesn't make sense to me because then people would buy condos and townhomes because they would be undervalued. But I don't know, who am I? And, and these numbers can change over time. I can see prices for apartments, largely driven by cap rates, changing at different rates than what we typically use for non five plus units. I can see that happening. Historically, I've suggested 3% per year for appreciation rates for most modeling. Some markets you'll be lucky to see 3% per year. Other markets, 3% seems like, yeah, per quarter, especially the last year. But, you know, last year is exceptional. You know, are you guys getting, getting involved in real estate investing because you think it's going to be 12% a year? I should discourage you now. It's not going to be 12% a year every year. You might see some years like that. This is what's great about it. You accumulate a portfolio and you have some lean years, and then all of a sudden it's like, I'm so smart, I have like all these properties and they've got up in so much in value. This is like amazing. Not every year is like that though, okay? So in order to do that though, if right here, appreciation rate, it shows you what the number is. If you put a number in here, it'll change it for that year for you. And then it will usually repeat it, I think. And so you go ahead and change it, and then you change it, change it for each year that you wanna change the appreciation rate, okay? That's how you do it. Same idea for rent. In fact, the same thing I basically just said, I've historically used 3% for rent depreciation rates. You'll be lucky to see in some markets and some markets 3% seems low. So you can go ahead and change the assumption though. Rent appreciation rate, it changes right here. You can't change it for month for year one because that's the number we're using from the homepage. So you put in the rent, it doesn't go up in year one, right? It starts in year two that it went up that amount. So you go ahead and do the appreciation right there. And then it shows you what the monthly rent is. You You can even override individual rents if you want to. Like everything is overridable. Overridable, I think that's a word. Um, okay. So that's another one you'll do. Maintenance. So I'll talk about the maintenance one. So you can adjust maintenance. If you're going to buy a property and you know, it needs a lot of work, you can crank up your maintenance for the first few years while you're doing all the work. But another case that we see a lot is new construction where you're buying a property and you know that because you have a home warranty from the builder and everything's brand new that you're probably not going to see pretty high maintenance for the first few years. So you can artificially lower your maintenance numbers. Historically, I used to teach You put 2% in for year one, 4% for year two, 6% for year three, 8% for year four, and then you go up to the 10% per year. And that only works in our marketplace with our rents and kind of like how things work out. If you don't feel that's conservative, don't use it. Use 10% from the very beginning. That's more conservative to do that or whatever number you believe is true for you. Um, So you can override that. I'll mention one thing too. So you can either do, I'm gonna set aside this chunk of money in rent ready costs to deal with a property that needs a lot of repairs. Or you could say, I'm going to pay for these repairs out of cash flow and crank these numbers up until you think you'll be done, right? So you could say, I'm going to put aside $20,000 to do all these repairs on this property when I buy it and rent-ready costs. Or, hey, I'm going to do whatever this number is till I get to zero cash flow, essentially, and for the first X number of years until I paid for it from cash flow, okay? Uh, sales costs. So this is another part of the spreadsheet. It shows you your sales costs. You can do your closing costs, which is what you have to pay when you're selling the property, any real estate commissions as a percentage that you're going to pay there or depreciation recapture tax. So that when you, you get this depreciation benefit while you own the property, but when you sell it, the government's like, uh, 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 we want our money back. So you get this huge benefit of depreciation, cash flow from depreciation, while you own it. But then when you sell it, they actually look at what you took and they want you to pay taxes on the amount that you took as gross depreciation. So that's what depreciation recapture is. When you go to sell a property, we want to then pull that out. And so usually the tax rate for that, it varies a little bit based on some situations, but it's usually 25% of the gross depreciation amount up to your uh, up to your income tax rate. So if you're making if you're paying less than that, it's usually lower. And then capital gain rate, if you owned a property for less than a year, it's your normal income rate for this. If you've owned it for more than a year, it's typically there's some exceptions based on how much you earn, but a lot of times it's 15% um, of the amount that the property went up in value. So if you bought a 400000 dollars property and you sold it you know, X number of years later for 500,000, you only pay the capital gains on that $100,000 difference. And then you only pay the depreciation recapture tax on the depreciation amount you took. So these two taxes are calculated correctly in the spreadsheet, but they're different on that, what they are calculating. So it's not like 15 plus 25, I'm paying 40% in taxes. No, you're not. You know, you're paying 15% on the gain and you're paying 25% on the depreciation benefit you got while you owned it. Okay, so realize that they work in different ways. And then this real estate commissions on whatever the sale price was usually. So there's four different expenses on there. You can adjust all those closing costs, real estate commission, depreciation for capture tax, capital gains. You can use my defaults, which are pretty common. Whoa. You can use my defaults, which are pretty common. Or you, if you know something is different, if you're doing a 1031 exchange, you know which ones to modify. If you're a real estate agent, you can do that. If you have really low income and you've got some tax benefits of you know, capital gains or depreciation recapture, you can go ahead and change those to be what is true for you. And you can do it by year. You say, look, I have a really low income year coming up in year five, so it'll be really low there. It might look like a benefit to sell it that year in order to optimize for that. But that's a different class, which I don't have time for. Talk about that. Any questions on this? Kind of crazy, right? Okay. And then refi costs, you can do your cash out, refi, costs to do this, or a dollar amount. So it's either a fixed dollar amount or a percentage of the amount you're refining, it'll do that for you. That's for the override. All right, we finally got to the outputs. We got 20 minutes to go over outputs, because I think that's the end. So was it helpful to have the thing for notes? Was that good? Okay, I'm glad I did that. Good question? Yeah, so it's both. So the question was, are the overrides intended to be a backward looking, this is how my investment performed, and that's one of the new benefits of the new spreadsheet that you can override everything, or is this like a forward looking, Hey, um, you know, in year five, I expect appreciation to taper off and it's not going to be 7% anymore. It's now going to be 2% or negative 1% or whatever. And I can go ahead and plan out how I see the market performing or my tax situation five years from now when I quit my job, or, you know, any other kind of like complexity you want to do in there. And the answer is both, right? You could do forward-looking things. I'm going to buy this property and I know there's certain things about my life and what I'm going to do. You can model that, which is great. Or you can now use it to, and it's not. It's, it was built with that in mind, but I haven't back-tested it for that. And if you guys want to test it and tell me where the problems are, please do. But you can now use it for, this is what actually happened in year one. So then when we look at year three and four and five returns, it's going back to the beginning of time and using real numbers. So that's the thinking. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Rob. I was wondering how difficult it would be to add like maybe a scale bar or something down at the bottom to show year one, two, three, four,
0: and five Mainly the two charts I'm looking at would be the monthly cash flow and the annual key metrics. Okay, so cash. So your request is to have a cash flow one through five, like yeah. cash flow, cash flow from depreciation and true cash flow. Ideally, uh, uh, one through five. Yeah, because
1: oftentimes it takes you know three, four, five years to stabilize yeah. a property.
0: That's a good point. It'd be kind of nice to see. Like, I know this is analyzing year one. Right? Yeah. Bad if it's a good, good deal or not, but. It'd be kind of nice. No, that's actually really good feedback, and I, I definitely appreciate you giving that feedback. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do live classes. Email me and remind me to do that. And secondly, tell me which of the nine which of the nine charts you want to remove. So I, I'm I'm happy to do it, right? But like, which one should we? And I think I I think I know what it is. It's probably you know non loan expenses is my guess, right? For which one? you know what's interesting is. It does show cash on cash ROI cap rates for years one through five. Right. That's the just, middle one.
1: Just not the cash flow dollar amount. And the other one. Maybe
0: else. I do that and I have a right hand axis. I might be able to do the something. The other chart like I was looking at with annual key metrics. Uh-huh. Annual key metrics. You want that for five years? You realize you can see all this stuff in your overrides, right? They're all there. Oh, that's right. Okay. So every, all these. So yeah, let me be clear about this. I'm not hiding anything from you. In fact you can see more stuff than you've ever been able to see before yeah. because the overrides show all the intermediate calculations for everything, and they're all labeled. What you're getting at is the real estate financial planner software that allows you to look at any property, any number, for any individual property, and your whole portfolio combined. That's why you can copy it to real estate financial planner and run everything. Okay? All right. If, if there really are changes, though, let me know. Like, Drop me an email as to what you think I should do. Thank you. Okay, so this is where we're getting to. I got 15 minutes now, um, and I'm happy to stay a little late if you want to, but it's basically just one per one that I did, and I just zoomed it up to make it big, okay? So this is this this one. I'm going to go in this order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, okay? So I'm going left to right across the top, then the middle, and then the bottom. So if you're following along, that's where I'm going in the spreadsheet. Number one, monthly cash flow. This, in my opinion, is probably the number one thing people look at. They want to know how much cash flow they have. And in this particular case, the green thing is monthly cash flow. The yellow thing is cash flow from depreciation. And the two combined, summed up with the total at top, is what we call true cash flow, which is literally these two added together. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just trying to make it easy, right? So these numbers should be added up to this. Does that make sense? That's super helpful, right? Because that's a lot of times what we look at. Now, the, when you look at the real spreadsheet, you'll notice there's a whole bunch of colors. The four colors I use, I always use this blue for appreciation. Okay. I always use this green for cash flow. I always use this yellow for cash flow from depreciation. And I always use red for debt pay down. Okay. There's some charts that don't show those. So, what color do you use for those? So, these two. The ones in the middle are not those colors. They're not part of the four. Neither of these, neither of these, neither of these, neither of these, but the ones that are like on top are that. No, they're, they're not there. It's not like I messed up. They're like, they're not the ones that would have standardized colors. Any ones that have standardized colors though, they're colored that way. Okay. So any questions on this monthly cash flow? Really easy, right? And it's super, you know what you're looking for and it's big and it's easy to see. Cool. Okay. This is the colors I was talking about. So, uh, this is remember that return on investment quadrant, return dollars quadrant, return, you know, all those quadrants that we do, we do all this stuff. They're all color coded for this reason. Appreciation is always blue, cash flow is always green, tax benefits are always yellow, debt pay is always red. Same ones here. So, these match cash flow and tax benefits, they match to this. Okay. That was purposeful. All right. All right. So, this is now going to the chart two on the top, second one across on the top. And this is showing you the amount of return in dollars from each of the four areas. So this is your appreciation. This is your cash flow for the year. This is how much you paid down in debt. This is how much you had in tax benefits. And then if you had a return from the reserves, if you watched a class where we talked about having amount of money set aside in reserves and figured out what your return is on that, there's a whole class on that. I can't go into it right now because I only have 10 minutes left, but there's reasons why we have three different versions of this, okay? These numbers are always going to be the same. The appreciation numbers for all three. The cash flow numbers are always going to be the same. The debt pay down numbers are always going to be the same. The tax cash flow from depreciation numbers are always going to be the same. The number that changes is how much you get in reserves, whether you have six months of reserves, RIDQ plus R6, R6 stands for reserve six months, or 12 months of reserves, R12. So it shows you the dollar amounts and now the total is on top here. So the total amount of your return, if you're not doing reserves, if you're like saying, screw James, I don't, I don't believe in this reserve thing. I've got a credit card. I'll just do that. Bad idea. But if you're doing that, $21,45 is your total amount. The majority of it coming from appreciation. The next biggest one is your debt pay down, a little bit of cash flow, a little bit of tax benefits. Okay? So you can see that. Then you see how much you got. If you had six months of reserves, you're getting a return on that. And, six, and 12 months of reserves if you're getting a return on that. Just shows you dollars. Does everyone understand what I just went through? Because it's gonna make me sh- explain the next chart a lot easier if you understand this one. Everyone got it? Any questions? Yeah, Andrew, where's Mike? So with
1: the appreciation here, noticing that if you spend you know, $100,000 of rent-ready costs to do some renovation, and you increase the AIB by $100,000 as a result, you haven't really gained anything. You spent a hundred grand to make a hundred grand Yeah. here in this particular chart yeah. it shows the benefit of the hundred grand of the appreciation, but doesn't show the cost of that appreciation of hundred K because that's considered part of the total investment, not a cost.
0: Yeah. So it's going to come up in the next, in the next chart because right. then we're looking at return on initial investment. Yes. And you'll find out what the gain was on how much you put in, but, Because you're just looking at sheer dollars, I had to like put a stake in the ground as to which way you do it, right? Because you could you could make arguments the other way if it was that, yeah. That's what
1: I'm trying to think about for a while, and then try to like define year one to make it.
0: Yes, and this is why this is probably not a good burr spreadsheet, right? Because that sort of is a burr related thing, right? Putting money in and getting a return on that appreciation in year one, sort of thinking about it, and so I I put the stake in the ground saying. This is the way I want to think about it because in most cases, you're just looking at the sheer dollar amount that it appreciated rather than a burr kind of forced appreciation number.
1: Right. And I mean, the, you know, the return if you sell it chart has it all like, yes. because it has the has the invested money baked in. So that's all good. But it's like here, it feels like it's correct, but needs to be interpreted with. The yes. So that it has that.
0: And I think there's a whole bunch of things that come up like that. It's not just yeah. that one thing, right? There's certain right. things like your. You're putting in numbers, unless you understand why you're putting in numbers and what's going on, you could misinterpret what's happening. And I think that's, that's true of like a lot of tools. It's like, you know, using tools, you need to understand your tools as an expert. This is your kind of skill set as an investor to do this. Right. So yeah, I, I agree. It'll come out in the, next, in the next slide. Any questions on this before I go to the next slide though? If you don't understand this, you're gonna be confused. Any questions? This is what this is. This is like, if you're getting a return on your reserves. So you put six months in reserves in some type of low um, bearing account. And this one you put in 12 months reserves, but you're willing to be a little bit more risky with it and get a higher return on it, okay? All right, next slide. This is the same chart presented a slightly different way, but now we're not talking about dollars. We're talking about how much you earned in dollars divided by how much you invested in order to get that return. So now we're saying you didn't have $13,200 $13,200 in return, you now had 11.49%. That's that 13200 divided by whatever you invested in order to get the deal. So this now shows you you had 11.49% return on that initial investment in year one in appreciation. Okay. Then what's your return from cash flow? You got 0.57% return. It's the cash flow dollar, $656 divided by how much you had to invest to get the deal in, deal, in, month, in year one. Then 4, 4.24% is your return from debt pay down, and 2.37% is your return from cash flow from depreciation. Okay. Then there's a total on top. If you downloaded the old spreadsheet, there weren't totals up here. Now there are. You're welcome. Yes. But everyone has their own version of what a deal is based on what their situation is, what their investments that they can make are, what their market is. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into this and what your plan is, right? I think there's a lot of things. And so this is more of the two hour of uh, like setting your, what did I call it? I think I called it like, uh, what do I call it? Establishing your buying criteria. Yeah, there was a buying criteria class where I talked about all the different ways to measure returns and what yours are for setting up what makes a deal a deal for you. Yes, they do go negative. Yeah, yeah. Andrew's going to check it because he's got the spreadsheet up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So these will go negative. They'll just show up down here and then your total will be lower. Okay. So it shows you though your return. And then when you have the ROIQ, which is return on investment quadrant, the four areas of return plus six months of reserves. That six months of reserves return is now this gray area. And this is our return on investment quadrant plus reserves for 12 months. This gray area up here is your 12 months of reserves, the return you're getting on that. And again, it's just showing you the total. So it shows if If you're not, if you're saying, screw James, this reserves thing is kind of for jokes. You know, I'm getting 18.67% return on my money from all these areas combined. But if I actually think about it in terms of I need to have six months of reserves in order to be prudently investing in real estate, because what happens if you have vacancy? What happens if you have repairs? Or what happens if you have other stuff like that? Then this says, hey, look, my overall return is really 16.57 if I have six months of reserves somewhere, including getting a little bit of money on that reserve that story somewhere. And then this one says, I got 12 months of reserves and I'm getting a little bit more money because I've got a larger return on that 12 months of reserves that I have. And so it shows you the return there. So this is sort of like your return with the drag from having reserves returns. So that's another way to think about that. Make sense? Okay, cool. So one chart shows dollars. The next one shows your return on investment for year one. If you wanna see how these ROIQ numbers Look for other years. That's at the top of page two of your handout. It shows you your return in dollars for all of them and your return on equity. Because once you get past year one, I don't think the initial amount you invested matters anymore. Then I think it's all about how much equity you could get out of the deal and what your return is on that. So it shows you those two and it breaks it down into the four areas for those. Cool. All right. So now we're down mid row all the way to the left. This is the returns if you sold the property. And I have three different returns. I have your annualized return. You basically take the amount of money you made divided by the amount of money you made as a percentage return and you divide it by the number of years. That's what annualized is. It's really simple. So it shows you if you sold it right away, you'd lose money because your real estate cost to get out of the deal exceeded what you made, which you didn't make anything. But then as years go by, year two, year three, you start getting to the point where you're gonna make a little bit of money using the assumptions we had. And then the further you go out, the higher this is. And this is the just really simple return you earned divided by the number of years. That's what annualized return is. The next one is compound return. That's the gray line, the bottomish one. And that shows you what return you had as if that was a yearly compounding return. I have to figure out what the formula is, but it's something with an exponent and stuff like that. Just realize that that's what it is, it's compounding. And then the last one is your internal rate of return. Internal rate of return takes into account when you have money going into the investment and when you have money coming out of the investment, and it does a return based on that. So it's, that probably is, in my opinion, the best one to use of the three of them, internal rate of return. So it shows you what it is, and you basically look at the year and what the return is in that year, and that tells you what that year is return is per year, okay? So this is like almost 10% per year return in this case. Any questions? And this one shows 20 years for you. So you can see 20 years worth of history. Okay, any questions on that one? All right. The next one shows you some people like to look at cash on cash return on investment when they're evaluating their deals. Some people are all about cap rate. Cash on cash says, what's my cash flow divided by what I actually put into the deal? The cash I'm getting back divided by the amount of money I invested, cash on cash return on investment. Cap rate says, what is the amount of money I would get if I did not have a mortgage on this property, but I had all my other expenses, property management, taxes, insurance, maintenance, all that other stuff. It says, what's the return if I bought this all cash? So it's net operating income divided by purchase price or value, depending on when you're calculating it. But cash on cash is the rate of return you're getting on the money you have invested in the deal. So. If you want to do cash on cash, it's these green boxes, and they're labeled. So in this case, year one, you get 0.57%, 1.14, 1.73, 2.34, 2.97. And then cap rate just shows you the numbers going all the way across. So if someone says to you, look, I'm buying a five cap property, that's cap rate, 5% capitalization rate. Okay? Any questions on that? Yeah. microphone. Purchase price,
1: not BFB, and not dependent on the closing costs and rent-ready costs. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. This is, this is a weird one, right, Andrew? Because, yeah. because, I mean, it depends on what you're saying. You, you can make an argument that it should be on ARV, right? Because that's really the value of the property. It's like your net operating income divided by the value of the property. That's how it's calculated in year two and three and four and five. But year one, we often use purchase price. So I don't know. I mean, or or it could be
1: purchase price minus closing costs because you can't get away without.
0: Yeah. So are you trying, are you going to the bank and you're trying to show them, you know, like how bad this is? Or, you know, or are you bragging to your friends at a coffee party and you want to tell them the better number? I don't know. It's literally like it's, you could go either way. I, what I actually do here. I don't remember.
1: Probably. I think it's uh, purchase price.
0: Yeah. So that sounds, well, it shouldn't be. It should well, be A or V because uh, A-R-V. A-R-V. if I'm doing year two and three and four, I wanted to be yeah. consistent. Yeah. I didn't want to have a weird, a number there. So I do, I do A or V, but you can make a really compelling case to do purchase price, right? Cause that's really what you're buying it at. Or, or total invested is the other, one, because you have to invest. Yeah. You're finding all like my like weird case examples, like all the, well, these are true with you. These are core to the, <laughs> no product. doubt, no doubt. This is like a weird, this is like a conversation you and I would have offline that no one else would care about. (laughs) So yes, I totally agree. Any questions on this? So some people are like cash on cash people, some people are cap rate. The other way to think about it is cash cash, cash on cash takes into account your financing, cap rate does not. Cash on cash takes into account your financing, cap rate does not. So if financing, if it's a weird market where financing is unusual or hard to get or something like that, this becomes a much better metric because it impacts whether it's a deal or not. It'd be return on equity only in the case where it's paid off. Yeah, yep, I think that's correct. The green bar would become the equal to the cap rate if you were if it was paid off. Yep, they become the same. All right, you guys are going way off track, but that's good. You ask your questions. You guys have probably heard the concept of return on equity, right? Return on equity is how much should I make in appreciation divided by how much equity I have in the property, or how much should I make in cash flow divided by how much equity I have in the property, or how much should I make in Cash flow from depreciation divided by how much equity I have in a property, or how much should I make in uh, debt pay down divided by how much equity I have in a property. You guys have kind of understand that concept. That's not exactly what this chart is, although it's really similar. The difference is your equity in the property is not all yours to keep. If you were gonna go sell that property, there would be costs. You probably have real estate commissions. You probably have closing costs to get out of the deal. You have that depreciation recapture tax. You have capital gains tax. So your equity, you may think, hey, look, my property's worth $500,000. I owe four hundred. dollars I have $100,000 in equity. Oh, no, you do not. What you have is $100,000 minus 6% of the $500,000 in real estate commissions, minus 1% of the $500,000 in closing costs, minus 25% of whatever I had to get in, in depreciation over those years that I've owned it, plus you know 15% of the $100,000 that I had in appreciation. Those are all subtracted from that hundred dollars So maybe you have $50,000 or $40,000 left. This chart shows you that return you had from appreciation divided by what you'd walk away with in cash by selling the property after all those expenses. Closing costs, real estate commission, depreciation recapture, and your capital gains. So true net equity is actually the equity you have if you sold the property and you did all the stuff you're supposed to do. Paid closing costs, paid whatever transaction costs to get out. You know, the the depreciation recapture and the capital gains tax, okay? So these numbers, in my mind, you want to know what your true net equity is because you want to know, hey, if I sold this property and now I walked away with $40,000, what would I have to get on that money that I walked away with in order to match this real estate deal? That's what we want to know, right? We want to know, like, if I sell this, what do I need to beat to invest? So that's why I like this, and this is why this chart is the way it is. So the blue line shows you your return from appreciation divided by how much true net equity you would have in that year. The red line is your debt pay down return over true net equity. Your yellow line is your cash flow from depreciation line over true net equity. And your green one is your cash flow over true net equity. And this dotted line is the sum of all of them. So you're pushing almost a 23% or whatever it is, return on true net equity in year one, and it kind of continues to taper off over time. Does that make sense? Annual key metric, I'm moved on to the next one. I'm at the very bottom on all the way to the left. This just shows you your gross potential income. If you didn't have any vacancy or anything, what's the maximum you could possibly get from this property with the current rent you're getting? That shows you what it is per year in year one. Gross operating income is this after your uh, vacancy expenses. Operating expenses tells you how much you're spending in order to operate the property, taxes, insurance, maintenance, stuff like that. Net operating income is the amount you're getting from gross operating income minus your operating expenses, gives you your net operating income. This shows you how much you would get if you owned the property free and clear if you did not have a mortgage on it, okay? This is all year one. Any questions on this? And as I said before, you could see this for any year on that overrides tab. And you could override any of it. If for some reason you have a weird year. Non-loan expenses. This just breaks out what you paid for stuff. This is what your vacancy, which is not really a loan expense, but I put it in here because I wanted it, to see it. Vacancy is the odd man out, but thousand uh, dollars in vacancy. This is how much you paid in property taxes. This is how much you paid in property insurance. This is how much you paid in HOA. If you had landlord paid utilities, that would be what's here. Your expenses one and two, how much you paid in maintenance, how much you set aside in CapEx, and how much you paid in property management. Just shows you all the expenses in year one. And then finally, probably one of my favorite charts. This chart shows you the two different equities you have in your property, the equity if you sold it, and the equity if you were able to get a 75% cash out refinance loan, and then what it costs you in order to access that equity. Okay, So the blue line shows you how much true net equity you had. You had a little less than a hundred thousand year one, and it kind of steadily increases over time to year 20. The yellow line shows you, if you could go get a 75% loan to value loan, how much could you pull out in cash out refinance equity each year, okay? And then the dotted line shows you, CTA stands for cost to access true net equity. So what are all the costs, real estate commissions, closing costs, uh, depreciation recapture tax, uh, capital gains tax, in order to get at this $100,000. So you paid 40% of what you got out here of $90,000 or so in order to get at this. That's really expensive money, right? So you could see what the cost was in order to get at that act that money. okay? And if you do a cash out refinance, it starts off really, really expensive to get at a very small amount of money. But over time, as your equity increases, your cost to access the cash out refinance equity goes down. That makes sense? Because a lot of people are like, hey, I want to redeploy this equity, right? I want to go use this. Well, some people don't care. They're like, I don't care about the cost. It's the opportunity to go buy another property. And in that case, that's fine. But at least you know, you know now what the cost is to get at that. this shows you how much you can get at. Okay? All right. Last slide. Then I'll take questions if you guys have it. I would suggest to you, if you're serious about being a real estate investor, go analyze 100 deals. And you're, one of the reasons why I want you to do this is, number one, I want you to be practiced so that when you actually have a deal you're serious about, you know, like where stuff goes, where to get things, and you're pretty quick at doing it and you have a feel for a lot of different stuff. And secondly, I want you to know what a deal is and what a deal is not in your marketplace. Because if you go analyze 100 deals, 90% of them are going to suck. They're just going to be like, yeah, this is a pass. But then you're going to be like, oh, you know, these 10 look decent. And you're going to know what looks decent because you'll have analyzed 100 of them. Okay. So that's why I suggest you do that. Then how many people are like overwhelmed? <laughs> They're like, holy crap, James! You are like crazy. No one? Oh, okay. Okay, you got a couple people. Okay, yeah. So this is this is the challenge, right? Because not everyone builds spreadsheets like this in retirement for fun, right? Like this is like, oh, yeah. You know, I'd like make a new spreadsheet. I'm gonna just go build this crazy thing, and this is what pops out two days later. Um, and and I understand that. And unless you have done this a whole bunch of times, you're like, cash flow from depreciation, true net equity. What are you even freaking talking about? It's like foreign language to a lot of folks. And you'll get better at it over time if you keep coming to class, which is what you want to do. But if you're overwhelmed and you're about to go buy a deal or you're trying to do this, get help. Don't like try to struggle through it and think, oh, I think I got this. And then you kind of half ass it and you end up with a really bad deal or really struggle with something. You can ask your real estate agent to say, look, I'm I'm doing this deal analysis. You know, help me walk through this together. They may use my spreadsheet. They may use one of their own. It's up to you uh, and up to them. But go ahead and ask them or you know, go find a CPA or an accountant who understands this stuff and can help walk you through your numbers. It would help if you did the 100 deals first. That way, when you go to them, you know enough to see when they're BSing you. I'm not talking about CPAs or accountants specifically, but in general, if you go to someone, you ask for advice and you don't know that they're like, they don't know what they're doing either. It helps if you kind of know, right? So definitely go get some advice if you need to from account CPA. Or if you can't get your real estate agent or your accountant or CPA to do this and you absolutely need help, um, you can purchase support. You can say, look, I'll pay James for 30 minutes to go over a deal with me and you could, or someone else. It may not be me. Um, but cause I may not want to do it forever, but basically you can go do that. If you really, really want to Steve's laughing because he knows he's like, yeah, James is going to do this like, once. He's like, screw this. I'm not doing that anymore. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. It's a very nice compliment. I'll have to give Steve his 20 bucks later. So. In my opinion, it's better to pay a little bit of money and avoid buying a really bad deal than to buy a bad deal because you were unwilling or, you know, your pride was too much to ask for help. I, I think it's just better to get help if you need it. All right. That's all I got. Any questions about anything before we go? Was that helpful for you guys? Did, was there any lingering things you are like, oh, man, James, I thought I was coming to learn about this and you didn't even talk about it. Anything like that going on? Yeah. You want to do the mic? Just to make sure. I think you have this, but is there a list of like all the different equation breakdown somewhere? That, like They're all visible not... in the spreadsheet, right? Like you can okay, mouse you can over see it and them. see them. Yeah. And one of where it's appropriate, I use named variables when I build my spreadsheets. But what the challenge is, once you start going 40 years out, not naming appreciation year one, it's whatever the letter is. So it's all in there. You can go like mouse over it and it'll show you in the In the field, Andrew can double check me, but I'm pretty sure you can see those, right? If you mouse over like a a computed field, it'll show you what the formula is on top. Yeah. So there's a good book out there. I think it's like, I don't know, 103 investor metrics every real estate investor should know or something like that. There's a book on Amazon you could buy and it walks you through the calculations for how to do all of them. So that's probably a good book if you haven't ever seen those and you need that. I don't remember what the title is, but it's something like that. 52 metrics some real estate investors need to know or yeah, look on Amazon.
1: I was just wondering where we go to start the hundred deals.
0: Uh, MLS, just go, just just start going through MLS. You know, if you're doing stuff locally, go pull them out of the MLS or, you know, you're doing stuff remotely, pull them out of their MLS, but yeah, don't, don't like, don't, don't overcomplicate this. Just go pull up deals. It doesn't even matter if it's a good deal because you're going to start finding out what's normal and then you'll start saying, Hey, look, I'm tired of analyzing the same crappy deal. Let me start discerning and getting better. You, anything, anything you do in life that you practice multiple times and you do repeatedly, you, you just naturally start getting a feel for it. and You get better at it. And you start understanding how things work out. And you, it, it may take more than hundred or you may be done at 15. It's probably gonna be closer to hundred though. And I can't tell you how many deals I've analyzed at this point. It's a lot, it's a lot of deals. And eventually you start coming up with rules of thumb where you're analyzing a deal and you're like, oh, this is just like this property that so-and-so bought or I bought, except it's $10,000 more or $50 less in rent or a hundred dollars more in rent. And so you start getting to the point where you're like, that was a really good deal. It was like $200 a month cash flow. So if it's $50 more in rent, that's going to be like $250 in cash flow. So I know that's going to be a good deal. And you start getting references that you can use and shortcuts, but you don't get that unless you've done 100 and, and probably more than 100 to kind of get to that point. But that's where you're aiming for.
1: So you said there's a class, though, that says like criteria that you would or
0: Do anyone remember the title of that class? Was it Establishing Your Buying Criteria? Yeah. So there's a, ch- there's a two hour class on that. And, and honestly, I don't give you an answer. I don't Where tell you it? um, It's on the website, establishing your buying criteria. So the challenge, the challenge you're going to have with that class is, I don't say to you, 10% cash on cash, you want to buy those, right? What I talk to you about is, these are the different kind of metrics you can use to establish whether this is a deal for you or not. And it's up for you to decide what that is. And honestly, if I gave you numbers today, they may be very different than what they are six months from now. And I know they're different than what they were six months ago. Like I did a class right before I, I went on sabbatical and I was going to retire. And it was called, is Nomad dead? Because the, the question I got from people was, Hey James, in your Nomad book, you're talking about $270,000 properties and the properties I'm buying now are $400,000. And the rent to price ratios are, are very different than what they were. So is, is Nomad work anymore? Should I even bother with this crap? And what we determined was, look. If you ran Nomad from where we were then, which is probably even different than it is now, but if we ran it from where we were then, I showed you what the returns would be with just really modest kind of like returns. And I said, can you beat this return somewhere else? Do you have another investment that you can make or another investing strategy? Maybe it's not even real estate, maybe it's stocks or maybe it's something else, but do you have another thing that you can do where you can beat these types of returns? And if you do, do that. <laughs> I'm not, you know, don't do the Nomad one if it doesn't make sense. But I think for a lot of folks, Nomad crushes everything. Like, you just look at it, you're like, even with conservative numbers and even with markets going down for a couple of years or things like that, I don't have something that I can use to beat it. Wasn't that sort of the gist of that class? Like, you know, I'm not trying to tell you to do Nomad. I'm just saying, look, this is what Nomad looked like back then. This is what it looks like now. Can you do better? Can you do worse? I don't know. You decide. So I can't give you a number. I can't tell you, you need to make $100 a door. or You need to make $500 a door. Or you need to make 5% cash on cash. Or you need to do this. Partially because I could tell you you need to make 5% cash on cash, but that's maybe for putting 25% down. And maybe it's not even buying in our local market. And then you're like, well, I can't find any things where I can get 5% cash on cash because I'm doing Nomad and I'm putting 5% down. So nothing's got 5% cash on cash. It's all negative. Or I'm doing a, I'm doing a VA loan with nothing down for my first deal. And I can't, there's no way I can get numbers like that for that particular deal. And in another market, someone could be listening to this recording and being like, man, you guys aren't able to get positive cash flow. I'm trying to determine whether I'm buying a $600 a month positive cash flow deal or the $450 one that's in a slightly better area. And so it's a totally different thing. Or maybe you're doing short term rentals or something like that, where it's like, yeah, 5%, like try 50% cash on cash return in the year. Like they're totally different numbers. Or maybe I'm doing bird. I'm I'm really trying to not have money in the deal at all, but my cash flow, I don't care about because. I can, I can wait a long time for cash flow to improve when I don't have anything in the deal. There's all different criteria, and it's really you that needs to decide that, not me. I can't come in here and tell you, do this. And, and it'll be out of date, you know, three months from now, especially if the market softens or the market gets, it can hard to imagine it getting crazier than it is, but, you know, the thing goes both ways. And a lot of people who come to these classes and they're relatively new, they haven't seen the down market yet. And so you don't know what you don't know. And I'm sure I'll talk about that in future classes, but I've lived through some pretty rough markets. And so you, you have a different perspective when you do that. And you know that you can't put in 10% for appreciation and expect that to be a reasonable number. Right, Kevin? Yeah, see? But like, but when you put in 3% and then you go back and you're like, wow, James is off. It's not three, it's been nine for like the last three years. And I look like superstar. Just you know, remember those superstar feelings next year when you give five percent back, right? Because it still is awesome, but it's still not you know where it is. Even if it didn't go up in value at all, and all you did was paid off over thirty years, the numbers look awesome. So, paint it off. Totally, yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, just imagine you know you put up five percent now. You, let's say it's a five hundred thousand dollar property, which is about where we are now. You put up twenty five thousand dollars in order to buy a property. And when you're ready to retire, it's a $500,000 asset. Where else can you put up $25,000 and have it be $500,000 in 30 years? That's like a 10.51% 10 10. compounding yearly rate of return. Yes, totally. And this is what I'm saying. I'm trying to really simplify the math down and make it so it's it's hard to not do this. But but my point is, and I'm going really over time, there's a there's a phenomenon in the more traditional stock market investing world. It's, it's a special time in your life when, the amount of money that you're investing each year is produced by the amount you have invested. So you're putting away, let's say $10,000 a year and you get to the point where you made, you you have $100,000 invested. And then that year you have $100,000 invested and that produced $10,000 return for you. And you're putting in $10,000 a year. It's just like magical inflection point where your investments are doing as much work for you as you are personally doing yourself with active activity. Like you're doing stuff. And so it's this really weird, magical thing that happens. And for stock market investors, because the returns are what they are and all these other factors that go into that, you're not having, you know, a big asset thing that usually takes some time to get to that point. What's crazy is that with Nomad, a lot of times that happens in year one, where you put up a certain amount of money, especially if you're putting these really low down payments, like 0% or 3% down, and you have a crazy appreciation rear of like, you know, six or seven or 9% or whatever it is. You could get to the point where the investment you have is replacing, doubling what you put into your deal in that first year. And if not in the first year, in the first few years, which is just crazy to think about. And then to think, okay, I bought that one investment. Now I'm gonna buy an additional one, a second one in year two by doing Nomad. That's just awesome. Because now you've got two contributing toward that thing, which is just crazy, crazy good. I don't know, I'm off on a tangent. Any other questions? Well, thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. We'll stick around for a few minutes. I'm gonna stop the recording.